world gone insane. An upside-down civilization cannot be real. A world of madness and terror. It's the Dana Gould Hour. Today's show is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com forward slash Dana and using the promo code Dana. Oh, tis the dog days of summer, and we're here to get you through it. Today's show features an all-star lineup of comedy heavyweights. Recorded live at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, Gilbert Gottfried is here. Follow him on the Twitter at at Real Gilbert. An old friend who I have wanted on the show since the very first episode, Brian Posehn. Follow him at at the Brian Posehn. B-R-I-A-N-P-O-S-E-H-N. Eddie Pepitone is here at Eddie Pepitone. And what would the show be without him? As well as one of my favorite new performers, Kate Berlant. If you don't know Kate, you will very soon. You can follow her at at Kate Berlant, B-E-R-L-A-N-T, and the hilarious Dan St. Germain. Dan St. Germain with no period after the saint. D-A-N-S-T-G-E-R-M-A-I-N. Now, if you happen to be in the Cleveland, Ohio area, I will be performing at Hilarities from August 20th to 22nd. In September, I will be returning to my old stomping grounds, the Punchline in good old San Francisco, on September 18th, 19th, and 20th. One last thing before I begin. I want to heartily endorse Bob Goldthwaite's new film, Call Me Lucky. It's an amazing documentary about Barry Crimmins, who guessed it on this very podcast last year. It is one of the most entertaining, funny, and also powerful and moving films you'll see. You can check it all out at callmeluckyfilm.com. But in the meantime, this podcast is clawing at the back door, so I think I'll let it out in the yard. Enjoy. It's showtime. Good afternoon, suckers, and welcome to uh, what has been a long time uh, in the making, a full cast reunion of the original 1977 Broadway cast of F Troop Mania. Not the cast of F Troop, but an incredible simulation. I am Dana Gould, and I have uh, literally, this is like a murderer's row of people I have always wanted to have on the show. Please welcome uh, my first guest, nothing less than a comedy legend, Mr. Gilbert Gottfried. Also, uh, uh, hilariously funny and um, 
At the reading yesterday of The Big Lebowski, Jennifer Lawrence described him quite accurately as a hot bucket of fuck. Eddie Pepitone, ladies and gentlemen. Look at him. Walking sex. You look like a hot bucket of fuck. <laughs> Has anyone ever told you that? Jennifer Lawrence yeah. told me that. Yeah. I and, told her, take a number, baby. And, uh, and last but not least, somebody that I wanted to have, uh, this is actually his first appearance on, on the podcast, and I've wanted to have him on the podcast for so very, very long. Old friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, and everybody has a funny side note to his career, lost the role of a lifetime when Cheryl Ladd beat him out to replace Farrah Fawcett in Charlie's Angels, Mr. Brian Posehn. Angels, I... Charlie's Angels was an incredibly horrible show for women. It was always like, Angels, I need you to go undercover at a rape victim camp. Why don't you do it, Charlie? No, it's better if you do it, I think. It was was uh, great for 12-year-old wieners. You know what I mean. I never jerked off to Charlie's Angels. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I remember it being one of those shows everyone talked about it being so sexy and so dirty, and I never got... Well, it was hard to jerk off to Charlie's Angels and originally because they didn't have VCRs or anything, so basically you were really dependent on your family all looking in the other direction <laughs> as you sat in the living room. <laughs> or you store it away and head up to your room yeah, after. True. Yeah, yeah. I had a, Sometimes uh... I'd start a fire in the kitchen <laughs> so they don't... <laughs> A diversionary. The Great yes, Chicago yes. Fire was actually yes. somebody jerking off to an early picture of Margaret Sullivan or whoever was. A, I don't know. Whoever was a movie star back in whenever that year was. I knew it was a long time ago. It was an ankle shot. It was a, I had a TV guide with Lindsay Wagner on the cover that uh, I kept long after it became a relevant television guide. <laughs> Mike Douglas had changed all of his guests, but Lindsay was still in my uh, bedroom. She had a bionic ear, but it didn't work unless she moved her hair out of the way. <laughs> Did you remember that? How about, how about Wonder Woman, though? That got really intense. That was a lot of flesh and a lot of flying. Oh, Linda Carter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right, Gilbert. Linda Carter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lyle Wagner. Yeah. Lyle, Lyle Wagner. Yes. Developed a Honeywell. Oh, that's yes. A, Lyle Wagner. And this is the reason my life is an avalanche of pussy. (laughs) I have a great story about Lyle Wagner. No, uh, Tim Conway once famously said, Lyle Wagner is the nicest guy, and he has the nicest wife, and they share the nicest brain. (laughs) Apparently not the sharpest knife in the drawer, not the brightest bulb in the hall. But I've been watching Wonder Woman again because it's they rerun it now on MeTV. Me too. And it's an absolutely atrocious show, but she's yeah. unbelievable. And I saw her at Barney's, like in Beverly Hills, like five years ago. And uh, she still looks great. She's yeah, just... well, I see people too. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a fucking competition already? <laughs> Jeez, it seems like rice. <laughs> I'd like to think if it was, I win. Late 70s primetime television was just an unapologetic fuck bath. I'd also like to throw down Aaron Gray from Buck Rogers. Oh, yes. 
Oh yes. my God. Yeah, just ridiculous. Do you think we feel like it's a fuck bath because, and now I'm going to really move the podcast into a deeper level, do you think because pornography, it leaves nothing to the imagination, but back then we had to use our imagination. So I don't watch pornography. Like, I jerk off now to the news. You know what I mean? Like, I like to... How redundant. (laughs) That was social commentary. I like to hold up a mirror to our society. To me, the thing about porn that is left to the imagination is the childhoods of the actors. <laughs> it's just, eventually they'll have an app on your phone that you can see it, and it's just bats and screaming children. It's just calliope music and a fisheye lens. What was a fuck bath for me was the solid gold dancer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was major hardcore porn back yes, then. absolutely. American Bandstand, not so much, but Soul Train had some incredibly... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kids don't have that nowadays. They don't have to get up on Saturday morning or Sunday morning and watch Soul Train. They can just open up their phone and watch German Scheiser videos. <laughs> I mean, it is getting to the point now where it's just, uh, as, as Tom Waits would say, girls with without skin it's just now people's x-rays here's the thing with porn you can google low carbon imprint and it will take you right to porn (laughs) endangered species doggy style on top of a glass elevator is an endangered species and here's a video of it no eco porn is really hot right now no i see brian gearing up and i'm Brian keeps, like, cocking his shotgun and not firing. Well, yeah. Well, no, I can't believe this show should have been called Old Guys Talking About What They Used to Whack It To. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly clearly you did not read the libretto. the premise up in your room. I'm just going to get these guys to talk about what they used to fucking ram it up to. What you do with your Evil Knievel Sky Cycle is (laughs) is completely... um, Wait, how did you... And the trick is, like, you'll be working, and you're like, uh, oh, I'm bored, and I've been writing for 20 minutes, I need a break. I just want to look at one tit. That's all I want to yeah. look at. One tit, by accident. That's what I want to see. And then, well, if you like this, you like that. If you like that, you like that. You like that, if you like that. And then two hours later, you're looking at God knows what. The phone rings, you get distracted, then your wife comes in, looks at the computer, and says, why are you watching two sailors fucking a squid? Funny you say that. <laughs> that was not my original intention. But there was ink all over the deck. It is a beautiful summer day High atop Mulholland Drive here at Falcon Lair Recording Studios My guests are the very funny and quite hirsute Dan St. Germain This is my voice And the also funny and not quite so her suit, Kate Berlant. And this is my voice. Beautiful. There'll be no one confusing the two of you. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of a day when I was a kid, and over the radio came the news that Elvis Presley had died. There's no one alive now that can compare to that. 
Mm. I, I guess John Lennon was. Yeah, that was the closest since then. Yeah, but no one today, like, no one's going to lose their shit when Jay-Z shits the bed. You know, it's just like... <laughs> right. I know. Who are... There are no idols like that anymore. What, yeah. Is it, what is it? It's the internet. It's like post-internet. There just isn't that amount of... There's just too much or something. There's yeah. too much research on everyone. And See. it's just too the consumption of it is too fast. It's like Doritos. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just it it just moves through you so quickly. Michael Jackson might have been the last person. And I predicted his death. <laughs> you you said eventually. I mean, I actually I am I mean, this is a little early to bring up, but I am I just recently discovered I'm a little bit psychic. <laughs> Okay, and I've been running from it my whole life. But the day before Michael Jackson died, I was like, Michael Jackson's gonna die. And then he did. Really? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. I feel like that was one like people tried to make it like Elvis, but then like they'd be like, "Oh my god, he's the most important." And someone's like, "But didn't he fuck? He's the most important. He's the most important." Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. Like Elvis certainly had a massive creep factor for that time. But now he's like so tame. A saint. He was ridiculed for being big and fat, but if you look at the pictures of Fat Elvis, by today's standards, he's not even fat. Right. He's just like slightly bloated. Yeah, he's just bloated. And apparently he had a metric ton of impacted bowel. And that's what triggered the heart attack. Oh, my God. He was literally full of shit. <laughs> How does that happen? Oh, see, 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 right. You take a lot of barbiturates and your system just shuts down and stops doing what it's supposed to do. What do you mean he had a ton of shit? I heard, this can't be true, (laughs) but I heard about 50 pounds. Oh my God. That could be true. I feel like that could be totally. There's all these things you hear about your body that aren't true. Like I remember growing up thinking, you have two miles of intestines. That's not true. No, you have like, (laughs) you have like, I think five feet. (laughs) Like to the moon and back. You could, if you were to stretch out the lower. Yeah, exactly. It's the equator. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of my friends uh, who were former heroin addicts, they would talk about like when they would shit, which would be like once a week or once every two weeks. It was just like, you know, the Kraken coming out, you know. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) Your body works really well on its own. You don't need a lot of help in terms of like a big brimming bowl of colon blow. You don't need to do that. Your body's going to handle it. Um, Elvis was a pill freak and the uh, effects of the medication really messed up his body. And you just get to that point where if you surround yourself with people that are just dedicated to your well-being all the time, of course you go bananas. Every day for, what, 40 years or however long he was on television, David Letterman would go to an office. And every single person in that office had the job of making him happy. Like, how do you stay on the ground? You like, can't. Of course you sleep with your interns. It all gets gray. I say, yeah, I guess. Okay. I don't want to make this analogy. I'm not comparing Letterman, but like when Woody Allen thought, I'll just date my girlfriend's daughter. Like, well, that's just not hearing no for five decades. That's what gets you off at that point, too. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, well, I could have any 10 at this point. Right. You know, I want the thing that I can't have. Yeah. Or it's just like you just get everything is so wrote and done. It's like, I can only, you know, the only thing I can do now is put on a condom made of scuba gear and fuck a handbag right. full of tarantulas. <laughs> Unless it's your daughter, it's banal. 
It's like two. Yeah. yeah. What was really strange about when Michael Jackson died was the doctor that prescribed Michael Jackson the medication. They were saying they should kill him because he killed Michael Jackson. At the same time, there was a famous child molester killer that they said should be killed. But he killed another child molester. Shouldn't we let him out? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of accusations about what Michael Jackson did, and nobody really knows, I think, exactly what happened. But when you live in an abandoned amusement park, (laughs) and you're not a Scooby-Doo villain, something's up. (laughs) It's the most cinematically strange thing that's ever happened. The only thing is that if he was a child molester... Why would you buy a sign for your house that says, I'm a child molester? Well, again, because when was the last time somebody said, Said that's not a good idea? Yeah. As Barry Crimmins said when I interviewed him on this podcast, the, you know, these people hide in plain sight. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just look at this objectively. <laughs> he has an amusement park. Right. He only hangs out with kids. But still, when he died, the impact that he had on people was so strong that it overrode that. People still went berserk when yeah. he died. Yeah. I was reading that the latest Bruce Springsteen biography, uh-huh. and then there's like one point where I guess he slaps the girl that he was with, and even then all I'm of like, his music should be deleted yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, but there's part of me I'm like, let's just forget about that. Because <laughs> you know I mean? I'm such a huge Springsteen fan, uh-huh. you don't want to know any of this stuff. You don't want to know if somebody didn't tip right if you really liked him. Yeah, you know? right, right. Yeah, I have been so lucky. Yeah, and that I have met a lot of my big heroes, and they were all awesome. great. Yeah, George Carlin, great. Albert Brooks, great. Bruce Campbell, great. Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell, also great. (laughs) I could have called her back. The only super famous person I met that was kind of douchey, Eddie Murphy. Mm. Oh, really? Speaking of Elvis, I mean, he wanted to be Elvis and got his wish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to be really out of touch, surrounded with psycho fans in a big, crazy house. (laughs) I have to say, his SNL appearance for that anniversary was like one of the most unintentionally funny things I've ever seen, where it's like they're begging him to come on, and then he comes on, he doesn't even do a bit. He's just like, wow, it's crazy that I'm back here. All right, I'll see you later. (laughs) It was like the biggest fuck you you without saying fuck you. Yeah, Well, and you know why he didn't do a bit. Because the Cosby thing. Yeah, they wanted him to do Bill Cosby, and he was like, I don't want to knock a guy when he's down. (laughs) Like, well, I I don't know about that. (laughs) That's, by the way, insane. That that went on so long without anyone knowing? Yeah, and you know, it it is so funny. Like, these people, and it's not just celebrities, I think it's, it's people in everyday life that they have such opposite intentions. Richard Nixon, who absolutely, positively, in his heart of hearts, believed in law and order, was elected to restore law and order to the country in 1968. That was his whole election campaign. The country's falling apart. We need law and order. That was also a dog whistle for racist Southern people to vote for him and was breaking laws left and right and left and right and famously said, "It's if the president does it, it's not illegal. But to him, no internal conflict whatsoever. Yeah. Michael Jackson, who said, I want to save children. He had that weird Lenny Reifenstahl video about saving children and yet is supposedly preying on them at the same time. And then when you step back and you look at it, it's like, of course you are. 
Of course, that's what you're obsessed with because you can't handle the internal contradiction that you're actually doing this very thing. His dad would use him to get groupies up to the room. Uh, uh, Michael Jackson's dad? Yeah, Michael Jackson's dad. Uh, I thought you were talking about Vernon Preston. (laughs) I think his sexuality was so stunted, you know, at an early age. I knew where my dad hit his porn at an age when I shouldn't have. Yeah. And I would have been much better off had I not, you know, <laughs> yeah. getting sexualized. That's toothpaste out of the tube. <laughs> right. That doesn't go back. Yeah, that in. doesn't go back in. You know. That's yeah. over. I eat popcorn. Everybody eats popcorn. She tastes real nice. Get yourself some now at our refreshment stand. Here's a weird thing that happened in the late 1970s. August 1977. Apollo landing? Even bigger. Mm. I was, say it again. What was the date? August okay. 1977. It's after Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> Star Wars still... Like Star- other nerds weren't figuring that out. Star- okay, no, no, well, yeah. Star Wars was May, so Star clearly... Wars, Star Wars was still in theaters, and all of the theaters showing Star Wars were also showing Martin Scorsese's New York, New York, uh-huh. because 20th Century Fox made them show it if they wanted Star Wars, because no one was seeing New York, New York. Again, see pussy, comma, avalanche of. <laughs> I'm picking blueberries with my mother. That's not code. And we, I had a little Charlie Tuna transistor radio. Charlie Tuna, a tuna fish who strongly advocated the human consumption of tuna fish. Yeah. He was the Gaius Baltar of tuna. <laughs> and we hear on the radio that Elvis Presley died. Ah. And it was the first time I ever saw my mother cry. She... What does that have to do with beating off? <laughs> Well, I, my when mo- he saw his mother, mother cry, he started jerking off. Yeah, oh, like, Gilbert. There was something so ironic yeah. about his mother crying that he never realized was so fucking hot. It was just. And he started going, oh, oh, and start he's- sobbing uncontrollably. Yeah, other people have died, Mommy. Other people have died. <laughs> and I told her that her father died 11 times before he actually shit the bed. <laughs> I don't think there's been anybody since, despite the level of fame, that, it, that was as that important to that many people. Like, whatever it was that he did, just was possibly mm. Michael Jackson. Possibly Michael Jackson. But here's not this guy. In the rock world, in the yeah. rock world, you're talking about, because I saw my just, mother cry just to the. Uh, I saw my mother cry when to Henry the Kissinger assassin. resigned. <laughs> Those were tears of joy, but when, when Hitler killed himself. Come on, guys! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Kurt Cobain thought just before we pulled the trigger, oh, this will put me in that club with Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> When Robert Kennedy was shot, I saw my mom uh, oh, yeah, yeah. crying, you know, and I was like, what's going on? And she goes, America just lost its innocence, son. And I said, well, I'm going to go out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when JFK died, a lot of people said America lost its innocence. And a lot of black people and Native Americans went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it happened things a little so, sooner. Things yeah. were so great up to now. <laughs> I think it was in 1975, Elvis Presley 
whacked out of his fucking gourd on prescription medication. Like it was he, prescription though, it was legal, right? Yeah, it was Why yeah. are people giving him shit? It was, he was instructed to take this by stuff. Do, yeah. <laughs> by Dr. Nick. And his business card said, a real doctor. <laughs> Like Dr. Robert yeah. for the Beatles. Exactly. He was wearing a purple velvet jumpsuit and cape and a pair of pearl-handled loaded Colt 45s. When he was found? No. Okay. He walked into the fucking White House. And visited Nixon. And visited President Nixon. He was only relieved of his guns at the door to the Oval Office. He got all the way up to the doors of the Oval Office, Fucked out of his skull. They said, we're going to take the pistols from you. Walked into the Oval Office and walked out a fully accredited federal narcotics agent. (laughs) (laughs) He walked and said, you know, Mr. President, I think I can keep kids off drugs. All right, let me give you a badge. And he he was literally like a fully accredited. He literally thought like, now I'm going to go fight crime in a purple cape. Uh, like, Elvis, please play hound dog for me before you leave. <laughs> Elvis, I just heard that Dana's mother's dad. Is <laughs> Do you jerk off to Linda Carter? <laughs> I can't stop hammering it to Wonder Woman. <laughs> Nobody today. I heard when Elvis Presley jerked off to Wonder Woman, his (laughs) dick when he came would go, Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Brand new Cadillac. (laughs) I had the weirdest thing, and I don't know if this happens to everybody or not, but I was in the tub. Yes. Happens to me. Let that paint a picture. Now I know it. I'll be jerking (laughs) off. (laughs) (laughs) To that end, my penis came up above the waterline. And the lips of my urethra mouth, we're going to die alone, aren't we? Has that happened to anyone else here? I don't know, but that sounds like a great animated series. Maybe you should just hang yourself. (laughs) You could be in that club with Kurt Cobain and Hitler. Welcome to Existential Penis. (laughs) Brought to you by Folger's Coffee. Arnold Stang would make a good Arnold Stang! Yeah, Gilbert and I were afraid that this was going to go well. The next 50 minutes of the broadcast will be devoted to the post-Frankenstein career of Dwight Fry. The Vampire Bat, a highly underrated performance. Porn's like chocolate cake. Little bit great. Every day, it's going to start to show. Yeah. Yeah. Like sex has changed a lot, you yeah. know, because of just the availability of pornography. You know, it used to be like, oh man, that guy's, that guy or girl is crazy in bed. And now I feel like, well, most people I know now <laughs> it's just are like crazy pure, in bed. It's just like pure performance. It's like utter kabuki. If, like everyone's just yeah. like, like yeah, they didn't no even know if that feels right. They're just like, this is what it's yeah. supposed to be. Yeah. And this is a generational thing. I completely miss that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> nice. <laughs> and yeah. Tinder. Like, I miss, like, people just recreationally hooking up. Yeah. Somebody was telling me about a friend of the, yeah, well, you know, they met. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Why did I come of age in the 90s? <laughs> it's also terrifying as the father of 
Of course. Uh, oh my god. Oh, yeah. But that Rashida Jones documentary. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Oddly enough, Rashida Jones was babysat by Michael Jackson. Has a scar on her hand from where Michael Jackson's chimpanzee bubbles bit her. Those who don't learn from history repeat it. Elvis Presley also had a chimp scatter. That's what the both Elvis and Michael Jackson were huge music celebrities. Justin Bieber. That's does he have a chimp now? Yeah, that there was that photo of him trying to bring. He abandoned him, right? He abandoned him. He tried to bring a chimp through an airport. Well, you know, scatter ended up in the back of Graceland, kind of abandoned too. Oh yeah, well, chimpanzees after a certain age are awful animals. Yeah, I don't not want to get a chimp. <laughs> that would not be my vanity purchase if I was super famous. I was, <laughs> you know, I would go the Nick Cage Shark Tank route. I think. Did he before. have a Shark Tank? Yeah, that was. How did he the- go broke? <laughs> <laughs> he had that, and then he had like a pyramid tomb in New Orleans. I mean, he. That's why he's doing all these movies now. Bankruptcy today. Yeah, he went bankrupt too. Ironic. A man (laughs) named after money, but a small denomination of money. Yeah, chimpanzees. I was on a I was on a sitcom years and years ago called Working, which wasn't and was canceled. And in one episode, my character was replaced by a chimp, and no one noticed. That was the hilarious. (laughs) Oh my god! No. So I'm on the set, and I go, uh, "Can I hold a chimp?" And uh, the guy goes, "Sure." And the chimp like crawls up on me, and it's weird because it feels like a person, but it's not. Yeah, and it's like grabbing my. And then I swear to Christ, this is true. The chimp just goes. And the guy beelines <laughs> over to me, takes it away, and is just gone. Like, oh, puff of smoke, gone. Did that mean, was that like... Well, the guy came back, and I was, he goes, what happened? And he went, oh, she was getting tired. And I went, okay, just curious. If you weren't there, what would have happened? <laughs> and he just went, would have been bad. What does that mean? Ripped your face off. He would have, yeah. He would have broken my jaw. His first step, you know this. The chimpanzees yeah. have a protocol when they oh, I didn't tear know off there your, was a protocol. Yeah, they break tongue. your break your jaw so you can't bite them. They chew off your hands so you can't claw them. They tear off your genitals. That joke writes itself. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, yeah, then they, then 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 if they have time, they take off your face. Oh my god! Yeah. It's sadly not like Planet of the Apes with the chimpanzees are these kind, far-left right, liberals right. <laughs> that are worried yeah. about your rights. They're all yeah. like Ray Donovan or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is speaking of Elvis because I had to stop seeing a psychiatrist a couple months ago because uh, I think we were talking about painkillers. I made a joke like, oh, I don't want to turn out like Elvis. And I swear to God, she goes, uh, well, you know, he's still alive. No, no, and no. And I'm like, What? And she's like, yeah, they spotted him in Memphis. You're kidding me. And I oh, was no. swear to God. And I switched my psychiatrist. I called him up later. I'm like, she still worked there to go. No, she got a better job. Okay. This is going to lead us right into you, Caperland. Okay. You've met my dogs, Alfie and Scott Davis. The only animal dumber than the one is the other. <laughs> and I couldn't get them to stop marking in the house. They're trained. Yeah. Purportedly. My friend goes, oh, you got to try this trainer. She's great. Comes in, train, like one session, two sessions, three sessions, not much is changing. And then finally we're going, so what am I doing wrong? She goes, well, I'm not really a trainer. I'm, I'm more of a, a dog psychic. And, uh, I've gotten them to promise. And I'm like, and I've spent how much money? <laughs> <laughs> do they still pee in the house? Of course they do. If they can, if they can, if I'm not looking, they'll, they'll mark territory. And I'm like, guys, I pay the bills here. Something happened where my parents, 
who aren't into that kind of thing, but somehow a cat psychic ended up at our house and she was, um, her cat psychic van broke down. She was a deaf cat psychic. Like hip hop. I'm trying to remember. um, (laughs) Like a rapping. The rapping cat psychic. There's your character. (laughs) It just sounds like David Lynch brainstorming days. (laughs) Just throw him in the scene. Let's see what happens. Yeah. What if he's eating cream corn and is a cat psychic? My family has two That's like good. black lab mixes, and uh, one's oh, amazing, amazing, and the other one's a like a nightmare, and uh, will not stop jumping on you when you enter. <laughs> like to the point of like dr- jump to the point of like like my ex girlfriend was there and she like, he like scratched her back all down her back. It was oh, like, yeah. oh. and I was like, come on, get off, and you have to like get them off, and now my. D- <laughs> Well, last time I was home, I this, the dog jumps on me. My dad runs from the other room and like tackles it, but in a hug, and is just like spooning with this dog on the floor in front of me. And I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "It's the only way I can get him to stop." Oh, Myla Nermi, who's this, uh, uh, was Vampira in the yeah. '50s and was a friend of mine. I would go over to her house, and her dog. She had a Jinda, which is like a korean police dog which is if it's not redundant and uh and i hated that dog so much and it would come over to me and lay down and get the biggest grossest dog boner like a <laughs> giant lipstick made of salami it was just the <laughs> grossest thing <laughs> he likes you yeah good for him but when you're a dog psychic you're assuming that dogs think the way people do I don't think they do. No, of course. They just it's... look at me as the can-opening dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the dog that can yeah, open cans no one, uh, no one ever looks at a dog and is like, okay, we know who John Bonet's killer is now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waffles <laughs> doesn't think you're appreciated in your new job. <laughs> yeah. So you're psychic. I mean... <laughs> you had a little premonition about Michael Jackson. I've had a few premonitions over the years. A couple of them pretty heavy. Everyone has this experience. Maybe everyone has this experience of like subtly, you just kind of know things are going to happen, or you like conjure someone. I conjured Amanda Pete twice <laughs> in one year. I thought you said I conjured a man to pee, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm right here, Kate. Well. You have yeah, my number. That's yeah. like predicting someone's going to die in the next hundred years. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, just small things like that, and then just recently, I've only been doing it on stage for like a month, but recently. I was just kind of messing around on stage, and I just got a lot of things right. Really? Yeah. What did you get right? For the record, yeah, I don't disbelieve you. Great. And I don't fully... I know you don't. You know. See, this is why radio is not good for me. Expressions. For those of you who can't see Kate, she's wearing Peter Gabriel's old sunflower <laughs> outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I, um... Oh, yeah, wait, what did I get right? I mean, just sort of looking at people and being, it starts out small. I'm like, oh, you're a Taurus. Yeah, I am. Uh, somebody, I'm seeing a lot of movement around you moving, and I'm seeing the East Coast and the letter T. Yeah, my boyfriend named Tristan just moved to New York last week, you know, stuff like that. Wow. So could almost be just kind of free associative, just hitting. Elvis thought he could move clouds. You know, that's when you get into it. <laughs> Elvis thought he could heal by laying his hands on people. Yeah. And he uh, often would pull his car over in the desert in Vegas and uh, make Red West and Sunny watch him move clouds with his hands. That's oh unreal. God. I've never heard that before. Yeah. They're moving slow. So he was like the little kid from Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. By the end of it. That's how those people get. I mean, uh, those people. Who's telling Jews, you? right? <laughs> <laughs> hey. You know what I'm saying. 
It's like we were talking earlier. Does anybody know anyone who has over a hundred million dollars that isn't a fucking asshole? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, I don't know. Well, Paul McCartney seems nice. Yeah. Money and power. Das corrupta. And, you know, he does think that when people meet you, they kind of go crazy. If you're Paul McCartney, you probably forget that most people, when they meet other people, the people don't cup their hand to their mouth and go, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Hi, I'm Mike. I'm here to fix the sink. Oh, my God. No, that's not how people act when they meet you. They're just regular normal. Ice cream bars. It's the handy way to enjoy smooth, rich, creamy ice cream. Get some. Is Larry Storch still alive? Yes, he was on my podcast. Uh, All right. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Which is the best podcast you can listen to. Better than this one. In fact, let me just say, if you're listening to this podcast, stop you're, right you're now. You're wasting your life. Yeah. You're throwing your life away. You can hear it on GilbertGottfried.com. Subscribe to on iTunes and SideshowNetwork.tv. Yeah, we interviewed Larry Storch, and he's like 93. Yeah, he's a million and, and six. Yeah, 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 and he's not the oldest guest I've had on. <laughs> Who is the oldest guest that you had Oh, on? my God. Well, we had Joe Franklin on. Uh-huh. Joe Franklin. When he was alive? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he couldn't get him then. <laughs> <laughs> but now he just comes and says, avenge me. <laughs> <laughs> Who killed you, Joe? I'll tell you in a minute. But first, what kind of mattress do you sleep on, David? <laughs> you were telling me who murdered you. I know. Do you remember on that show, they'd have a lounge singer and, like, some guy who was a plumber. Yeah. And it was just this... It, the beginning was a collage of yeah. Bing Crosby and uh, and Groucho Marx, and then no one known was... It. And then, no, yeah, and then it would be his foot doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many dead toenails are too many? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they start to look like Fritos. I know, I know what you mean, Joe. I think... I think I'm a foot doctor. I'd say one is too many. We'll be right back. But his foot doctor... I'm at seven. But his foot doctor would, like, have a side thing where he would play the spoons or something. And uh, that would entitle him to, like, be in showbiz, right? Like, no. frankly, oh, you play the spoons, I hear. Drew Friedman, who has been a guest on your podcast yes. and is among the greatest living cartoonists, oddly enough, he and his brother Josh, they are the children of uh, Bruce J. Friedman, the uh, author. And uh, they have a book that, in my opinion, it's quite literally the funniest thing I've ever read. It's a cartoon book called Any Resemblance to Persons Living or Dead is Purely Coincidental. It's one of many books, but that is the first book of theirs that I bought. And I, it's hard for me to articulate how funny it is. And they have a Joe Franklin show parody in there about Joe's interviewing technique where he would be interviewing Joe DiMaggio and it would be like, Joe, let me tell you what Marilyn Monroe was like in bed. What was the toughest game you ever played, Joe? (laughs) 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 He was not a skilled Charlie Rose-like interviewer. And if he'd have a singer and, you know, and then a plumber, he'd go, now, uh, now if you're you're singing and your toilet's overflowing, I, I guess you could go to this guy, and that would be the way of getting all the guests in the discussion. I miss, I miss those. He weaved. He was a weaver. Yes, was a, yes, but yes. I really do. I miss those afternoon talk shows where it's sort of a '70s theme we have going. Everybody would be smoking, 
Like Mike Douglas would have Kiss on and Tody Fields, and they'd all be on the panel. And this really happened. Mike Douglas, who was uh, had a strip show, like it was like Ellen, but he didn't dance. And he had one episode. He had Kiss and Tody Fields. And Tody Fields looked at Gene Simmons and she goes, I know under that makeup you're a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> and, and, and Gene goes, I'm afraid not, ma'am. And she goes, you can't hide the hook. And, <laughs> oh, and, and he cracked up. And he cracked up. He like totally cracked up. <laughs> but this is what I... When they were so are com- you saying you could be racist in the 70s? Totally. <laughs> Beaten off in racism. The that 70s. was the best thing about the 70s. 70s are fucking awesome. I would jerk off to racism in the 70s. Sure. I would watch race riots. <laughs> no. You and my dad. <laughs> They're marching on Alabama today. You won't see me. I'll be up in the room. <laughs> my fist a blur. <laughs> I just lost Hulk Hogan, so I'm having a problem with racism. (laughs) Apparently, there's a sex tape of Hulk Hogan, which, oh my God, I can't wait till this festival's over so I can fucking (laughs) hunt that down. Uh, I have to watch that immediately. But uh, he said the N-word during the sex tape. What word is that? Which one? The (laughs) N-word. Noodle? (laughs) Good for you. Not falling into his trap. (laughs) You're not going to make me say that on a podcast. (laughs) But anyway, he said it a lot, which I'm wondering how you get to that during sex. Is he having sex with a stack of Richard Pryor albums from the 70s? Because he could just be reading the titles. But yeah, it's it's sad, losing my childhood heroes. You know. And well, who is he? You know, Bill Cosby, him. Bill Cosby, what did, did you do? No, what, no. Now, <laughs> I've been up here for a did long time. Did you hear time. the Alf sex tape? <laughs> the Alf sex tape. <laughs> he hates well, Mexicans is... as much as he loves cats. <laughs> Interestingly, um, sort that of sad... tape of Captain Kangaroo <laughs> using the N-word yeah. the was just Kangaroo wrong. Jerking off yeah. of Mr. Rogers' sweater. Yeah. <laughs> this thing is going to be harder than a surfboard when I'm done with it. Fred... Is he having sex with a black woman? No, I don't, know, like, I, I don't like a, know what's going on. All I know is... Uh, huh? Do somebody know the whole story? Yes, absolutely. And it has to be true. You're British. Yeah. I'm Australian, for fuck's sake. Oh, I can't see you. That's actually a friend of the show. Brendan Burns! Hello, everybody. Uh, so what Brendan Burns from the English penal colony of Australia. That's true. <laughs> it's not too bad, because it's a hybrid. I am can, like... can you please say... That's not a knife. That's a knife. <laughs> Quite frankly, I'd rather say the N-word. <laughs> so Could you please? Was... In Australian, it would sound so much prettier. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a good, is there a chair for Brendan? And you can share a mic if you want. Oh, I, I don't mean to crowbar myself onto the show. But it's it's quite all right. The backstory is he was fucking his best friend's wife. Bubba the Love Sponge. And Bubba the Love Sponge released it to Gorka. Now, Gorka, of course, Hulk Hogan, is suing Gorka for millions and millions of dollars. This sounds like a Deep Space Nine episode (laughs) description. You won't believe this, but he's suing them for millions of dollars, looking to close them down. WWE have completely denounced him and everything, but Gorka have gone, oh, really? You think it can't get worse? So then they reveal the conversation he has with her earlier, and he talks about his daughter, Brooke. So Gorka then went, oh, really? Well, we've actually got the conversation you have 
had before you shagged his wife. He was supposed to be Matt Spacey with this guy. He was uh, going through a divorce. Bubba the Love Sponge had Hulk Hogan fuck his wife. And then somehow released this video. He videotaped him in his he, house. He had him or knew of No, it he or? had him fuck his wife. He was going through a oh, divorce. Oh, it was uh, a mutual, like, yeah, please yeah. He goes, fuck, oh, you know what? fuck you, my you, wife, please. Yeah. <laughs> he was like... And so everyone saw the, se- the sex tape. But it's a testament to how much everyone obviously fast-forwarded. Because the sex tape has been out for, what, three years now? And that's what I mean. Is so it's a testament that he's basically complaining about his daughter's music career. Well, there's up. something I do not talk about during sex: my kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's before the sex. You know, I gotta tell you, my daughter's art teacher is really giving her. A <laughs> <laughs> I think she's good. No, she doesn't follow traditional lines, but she has an expression that you can't deny. <laughs> good evening. Elvis Presley died today. He was 42. Apparently, it was a heart attack. He was found at his home in Memphis, not breathing. His road manager tried to revive him. He failed. A hospital tried to revive him. It failed. His doctor pronounced him dead at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And so ended the profoundly American life of Elvis Aaron Presley. Born in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1935 to Vernon and Gladys Presley... Elvis had a twin brother, Jesse Garen Presley, who died at birth. Young Elvis Presley wanted to be a singer. In August of 1953, he walked through the doors of producer Sam Phillips' Sun Records studio and cut a demo, and nothing happened. But he went back in January of 1954 and cut another one. And this demo led to Elvis Aaron Presley becoming a truck driver because nothing happened with that one either. But there was something about Elvis Presley that caught Sam Phillips' eye. Or more to the point, his ear. You see Elvis, who was white, and not a lot of people realize, blonde. He dyed his hair. But despite being a blonde white guy, he sounded black. And the rest, as they say, is why the cash register was invented. So Elvis went back to Sun Records studio in July of 1954 cutting yet another series of demos with guitarist Winfield, Scotty Moore, and upright bass player Bill Black. Late in the session, Elvis grabbed his guitar and launched into a version of Arthur Crudup's That's All Right. Scotty Moore recalled, quote, All of a sudden, Elvis just started singing this song, jumping around, and acting the fool. And then Bill picked up his bass, and he started acting the fool too. And I started playing with him. Sam, I think he had the door to the control booth open, He stuck his head out and said, what are you doing? And we said, we don't know. So Sam said, well, back it up, try to find a place to start, and do it again. End quote. Three days later, Memphis DJ Dewey Phillips played That's All Right, and the response was so immense that he played the record repeatedly during the last two hours of his show. He interviewed Elvis on air and specifically asked what high school he went to, so the listeners would know he was white. The vast majority of listeners upon hearing the song naturally assumed he was, quote, not white, end quote. Now, whether Elvis stole black music or made it his own is a long-standing argument. It is undeniably true that Elvis got into a fair share of trouble as a young man in Memphis for not honoring the city's deeply entrenched segregation laws. The Memphis World, which was the local African-American newspaper, reported that Presley, quote, cracked Memphis's segregation laws, quote, by attending the local amusement park 
on the night that was designated as Colored Night. Such was life in the land of the free in the 1950s. It is true that Presley was generally hailed in the black community during the early days of his stardom, and at one point at the peak of his stardom during a news conference, when a reporter referred to him as the king of rock and roll, Elvis pointed out Fats Domino, who was also in the room, and said, no, if anyone's the king, it's that guy. So there you go. And he was also, fun fact, a big Monty Python fan. So as far as I'm concerned, he's A-OK. Between 1954 and 1958, Elvis Presley was the biggest star in the history of popular music, a one-man cultural revolution unlike any the world had ever seen. More than anyone else, he brought rock and roll into popular culture and helped give birth to the concept of the American Teenager. The American Teenager was not a culture unto itself prior to that. They were just kids who weren't adults yet, but not really kids. But thanks to Elvis Presley more than any other single human being, they became a unique and distinct social force unto themselves. And so, of course, the people in charge tried to minimize Elvis. The New York Times said, Mr. Presley has no discernible singing ability. They would later say pretty much the same thing about the Beatles. According to Peter Brown and Harry Brusk's book, Down at the End of Lonely Street, The Life and Death of Elvis Presley, after seeing Elvis perform on the Milton Berle show, Ed Sullivan banned him from his own program, saying, and I quote, He's got some kind of device hanging down below the crotch of his pants, so when he moves his legs back and forth, you can see the outline of his cock. I think it's a Coke bottle. We just can't have this on a Sunday night. This is a family show. Well, the Milton Berle ratings were so huge that Steve Allen booked Elvis making him sing Hound Dog in white tie and tails to an actual hound dog. It was a ritual humiliation that Presley endured for the greater good. Steve Allen, who quite famously did not understand the appeal of rock and roll, never got it. Also, fun fact number two, never got The Simpsons, despite appearing on the show. But this doesn't make Steve Allen a bad person. It just makes him a good person, who is often a clueless douchebag. But here's the thing. The episode of The Steve Allen Show featuring Presley beat The Ed Sullivan Show in the ratings, something that had never happened before. So Ed Sullivan finally relented, thinking, what's a televised cock that looks like a Coke bottle between friends? Elvis was famously shot from the waist up, performing his forthcoming single, Love Me Tender, which went on to receive a record-shattering one million advance orders. In 1957... Elvis released the songs Teddy Bear, Loving You, Mean Woman Blues, Jailhouse Rock, Treat Me Nice, the films Love Me Tender and Jailhouse Rock, and at the end of the year, at the peak of his success, got drafted into the army. It was not the best career move. Imagine if Taylor Swift announced tomorrow she was going to drive a tank around Germany for two years. But Elvis went. He could have gone into the special services branch, basically fulfilling his commitment by performing for the troops, but no... Elvis did not want special treatment. He served in the 3rd Armored Division in Freiburg, Germany, and although he didn't completely avoid pampering, he did try as much as he could to be treated as normally as possible, given the circumstances. Elvis was discharged in 1960, but didn't so much return to his throne as kick back in a recliner. Spending pretty much the entirety of the 1960s making a blurry number of forgettable musical comedies, Imagine Adam Sandler movies with songs in them. He cranked out nearly 30 movies in 10 years. The man who sang Love Me Tender and Hound Dog was now crooning Do the Clam and No Room to Rumba in a Sports Car. 
As a result, Elvis pretty much missed what we think of as the 60s. The year the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's, Elvis released the soundtrack to the film Clambake, which, as I have said, is the greatest film ever made about a clambake. The year Woodstock hit theaters, Elvis responded with a little movie called The Trouble with Girls. The movie would have been timely if instead of girls he had said Vietnam. It seemed like Elvis was gone, but the time was right for him to come back. By 1969, a large swath of the American culture was getting pretty fed up of what we now come to think of as the socio-cultural movements of the 1960s. The peace and love of Woodstock was replaced by an on-camera knife murder at Altamont. Flower power gave way to the Manson family. And in 24 short months, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison all died, the Beatles broke up, and Richard Milhouse Nixon was elected president of the United States. Colonel Tom Parker, the man who not only brought Elvis up from obscurity, but then drove him into a ditch, had planned a Christmas special for Elvis in December of 1968. But Elvis chucked the idea. Doing a special that combined production numbers with Elvis jamming with a small band live in front of an audience. Like a car with a dead battery getting a jump start, you could see Elvis come back to life. John Landau wrote, There's something magical about watching a man who has lost himself find his way back home. Elvis wisely kissed Hollywood goodbye and went back to doing what he was born to do, performing in front of a live audience. And from 1969 to 1976, Elvis Presley was, well, the Elvis Presleyist. He dominated and in many ways embodied the sour excess of the 1970s, that feathered, blow-dried, bell-bottomed, coke-snorting, roller-discoed era. Elvis signed a lucrative contract with the International Hotel in Las Vegas, which had the largest showroom in the city. These concerts are documented in the very entertaining film, Elvis, That's the Way It Is. He released the double album From Memphis to Vegas, From Vegas to Memphis, which put him back on the charts with the hit Suspicious Minds. Even Rolling Stone, that bastion of hypnos, declared Presley's resurrection supernatural. In 1972, the documentary Elvis on Tour won the Golden Globe for Best Documentary. In 1973, the concert Elvis, Aloha from Hawaii, was the first global satellite broadcast. I remember watching it. At the time, it seemed illegal not to. The resultant double album went to number one. But, as the sad saying goes, those whom gods destroy, they first make mad. And by 1976, Elvis had become a parody of himself. Overworked, overweight, overwrought, and overindulged, Elvis became Howard Hughes in a rhinestone jumpsuit. Isolated in his mansion, addicted to a smorgasbord of prescription drugs to help him with various ailments, from glaucoma to an enlarged colon, a pill to wake up, a pill to go to sleep, a pill to help decide what pill to take next, Elvis had become a sad parody of his former self. Missing shows, sometimes making them but appearing not to really be there, muttering through songs and wandering the stage, his mind a numb haze of advanced pharmacology. And on August 16th, 1977... He took his final bow. Elvis's last 24 hours were a testament to how bizarre and off-kilter his life had become. Preparing to leave for a new tour, he and his girlfriend, Ginger Alden, went to the dentist sometime between 10.30 and midnight. He got a bunch of delouded prescriptions, went home, woke up his cousin Billy at 4 a.m. to play racquetball. Being Billy must have been a fun job. 
but he hit his leg with a racket, got a bruise, and called off the game. Then he went to play piano for a while, took some more pills, couldn't sleep, took some more pills, then took the book he was reading, Frank Adams' The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus, took some more pills, went into the bathroom, closed the door, and stepped off into eternity. Elvis Presley, profoundly American, all things to all people, the white guy who sang like a black dude, the skinny kid who became the butt of fat jokes, the poor kid who became rich beyond his wildest dreams, the twin who grew up an only child. Elvis had left the building. Now, you want to refresh your Elvis memory or begin your Elvis education? You can't top Peter Goralnik's two-volume biography, Last Train to Memphis, and Careless Love. You also can't top the documentaries, That's the Way It Is, and This is Elvis, also amazing. Albums? You need the Sun Sessions, the complete 68 comeback special, and his original Elvis Presley. Where do you get them? DanaGould.com. Well, you go there... And from there, you go to Amazon.com. You can get what you need, and for not one extra cent, Amazon will pass on a few bucks back to us to keep the lights on and pay all the nice people who make this for you. At DanaGould.com, you can also become a member of our podcasting family and subscribe just by donating. Or you can just donate. Whatever you do, please know we appreciate it. Lastly, please Check out our merchandise store at store.comedyfilmnerds.com for Bevel Aqua t-shirts, Dana Gould Hour t-shirts, ringtones, as well as signed copies of the comedy LPs, Funhouse and Let Me Put My Thoughts in You, or all three, Funhouse, Let Me Put My Thoughts in You, and my new one, I Know What's Wrong, all signed on CD. All at comedyfilmnerds.com. But you really got to get the vinyl. Just do yourself a favor and check it out. You're a pussy cat, you're where it's at, the one that's in on every place. The AMs are big girl. Casper is not only the ghost of a dead boy, it is also an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the average price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly onto the customer. They make an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but a Casper mattress costs just $500. For a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size. Casper mattresses have just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. And all Casper mattresses are made in America. They have a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com forward slash Dana and using the promo code Dana. And I thank you. Make sure you get yours and enjoy it now. Welcome to Political Talk with two guys from Boston. A working man's look at the socio-political issues of our day. And now, Political Talk with two guys from Boston. 
This is uh, Political Talk with two guys from Boston. I'm Johnny Condon. Robbie Sullivan here. Oh, we're in the dog days now, it's Robbie. It's getting warm, huh? Oh, God, it's getting mealy. Yeah, now we're going to fix machines, not just install them. Yeah, I had to go to Phoenix. Yeah. I was watching uh, spring training. Yeah. Kevin Rooney would describe that as chicken pot pie weather. <laughs> you know, you open up the oven, it's like checking a chicken pot pie, just that blast of <laughs> blast of dry heat that takes oh, your eyebrows off. That's but, great. Yeah, but we're like opening up uh, like the hamper of a daycare oh, it ain't that's good. been sealed tight for a week and a half. Yeah, I, I got a, like a handful of them. Uh, it's not a chamois wow, but it's something I've seen on TV where it's like a cool little blanket you can Ugh. wet and put on your neck. I got like four of them. It's not doing it. No, the weather feels like you're inside a mango. <laughs> Well, there's something about this heat where you go, (gasps) (laughs) yeah, I'm going to grab a slice of air. Yeah. I'm talking to my mother. She's in Texas right now. And she's like, are you smoking? You don't smoke. I go, no, I'm breathing. It's 98 degrees. Oh, God. You can can get a little of that going in this heat. It's awful. When you're 50. When you're 50. Speaking of people of a certain age, Jaws. Oh, 40, right? 40 years Mary, ago. Mother of God. I couldn't believe it. No, that was a great film. And I used to, and I was saying to a friend of mine, you know, if they made Jaws today, they'd probably follow it up with a bunch of shitty sequels. And they're like, <laughs> oh, wait, they did. <laughs> they what? really did. Jaws is a forever. Jaws, you know. Yeah, when, that's when, a classic. When the aliens come down, first thing is weird is they're going to be digging up graves and they're not going to understand, like, women with breast implants... Those bags of shit don't biodegrade because if it did, it'd kill you. <laughs> so they're gonna think they're gonna think it was a planet of skeleton people that worshipped water balloons. Like they're not gonna know what to think, but they'll still have they'll still watch Jaws. Yeah, but like Jaws 3D, Jaws the Revenge. Does anybody care about that? Like, is that movie preserved somewhere? There's like, ah, fuck it. Cool. Is there anyone? Yeah. In the country. Does anybody. Who says, gosh, darn it, Jaws 3. Yeah. Is Why anybody, do people have to be mean? Is anybody in Hollywood <laughs> going like, young doctors in love. Yeah. I'm oh, preserving. Taylor Negron. I'm, I'm preserving the master of young doctors in love. And yeah. then I'm going right into so fine and carbon <laughs> copy. Or does this stuff just yeah, just let it rot? Yeah, well, it's going to be fine. It's just crap. Know, we grew up on the cave. Where the boys go, are, 84. Yeah, We're we, doing the criterion <laughs> of where the boys are, 84. We didn't, we didn't own a home, but we got to go down to this in the summer. We went for a couple of weeks, sometimes a month on the Cape. Oh, where? Uh, Howitch Park oh, was, nice. was lovely, right next right to Dennis the, Port. Right in the crook. Yeah. It's right next to, we were right behind the theater where they played Jaws. Right in the crook of so the elbow So we went and saw the movie, but then every night we would hear the audience and the music right. from our, our backyard where we were like sitting and in like, ah! and, and, you just and eating lobster ben legs. And you just in his head. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could picture yeah. it. First we heard it a hundred times, yeah, like first all like, summer. Ah! Brody saw the shark. <laughs> 25 minutes later, <laughs> Ben got in his head. <laughs> That's exactly like, oh, the tank just got speared. Oh, Jesus. I can hear it. Yeah. So you saw it in 75. Oh, yeah. I saw See, it I was, a dozen times. Right. And, and I was, was it frightened. Because I, I was 10. I still went into the water. The Nantucket Sound, where I grew up, not only kept massive waves from like deteriorating the shoreline, sure. but it also made it like a pond of ocean that we lived in. So the, the, the sharks weren't coming over that Nantucket Sound. Right. Like, we never saw sharks. It wasn't like that. So right. growing up, in the middle of the night, I would dive into the water and swim as hard and as long as I could out into the ocean. And then when I tie it out, I'd turn around and backstroke all the way back. Mm-hmm. Even that after is a Jaws. great way to drown. <laughs> well, I was working down there at the that's Irish like, That's village. like saying, you know what I like to do? I like to take a handful of barbiturates, 
<laughs> then put on some uh, some well, heavy clothing and just jump in the saying. pool. After that scene where she's just swimming alone at night and she gets taken under, my whole family's like, what are you doing swimming at night? And I'm like, I have to. I got to go and get like that last bit of energy out to fall asleep to sure. like back to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand but, completely. But that's a great way to kill yourself. But here's the thing. It was a magical, it magical way. time. And you've never seen more people on the beach not in the water. Yeah. The beach was still packed. But nobody's going in the water. Just the little kids who haven't seen the movie. It was like and their the, parents are on the edge. It was like the summer that the George Clooney Batman and Robin movie came out. Oh yeah! So many people were in gay bars, not having <laughs> sex. <laughs> now what do they call everybody those? Everybody had pieces? everybody had nippled armor <laughs> and cod pieces. Cod pieces on the whole but crew. Nobody was the whole pulling, crew wore Nobody was pulling the trigger. It was a close set, and the crew had to wear them. I think of Jaws. I think of when I was 12 years old. I remember that summer. The two big hits I remember that summer. There was three. Skyrockets and Flight Afternoon Delight by Style and Vocal Band. Oh, I love that song. Skyrockets and Flight. Yeah. Now. Afternoon Delight. And now I think they're all from the Netherlands or something. And now oh, is that just, right? Yeah, they're just old people sitting around <laughs> punching each other. When I was at camp, that was a big one. And the you hustle. Like, oh, yeah, the, the do the hustle. By bum, Hughes bum, Corporation. Bum, bum. I can remember my aunts all being hammered and like doing that step. They do like yeah. do the hustle and they do the step and you'd see them all start to do it and you go, oh, I got to get out of here. Yeah, I got to go. <laughs> this is not for I me. I got to go. I'm getting groped by people that are my relatives. It was an execrable time for fashion. <laughs> the other, I, I still believe, have some of it. Oh, God, those high-waisted jeans. I also had coaching shoes with like the sweats with the lines down them. Uh-huh. And then a collar turned up, popped collar. Popped collar. And then my Nikes had uh, a shamrock on the inside of each of the Nikes. Oh, yeah. I remember the shamrock yeah. Nikes. I, I look like an, like an Irish escapee. <laughs> <laughs> remember, and this came a little bit later, but the preppy handbook was oh, a, yeah. dressed like a douchebag. <laughs> And there was a lot of tough kids at Zavarian that would wear pink eyes odds with fuck? popped up collars and be like, that's tougher. What the fuck was that's happening with that people? That's not that tough looking. It was a terrible time. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty good. It was a terrible, terrible time. Yeah. But Izod was like a big brand at the oh, time. Yeah. It was, now they have the actual Izod on shirts is like the size of like a deck of cards. <laughs> yeah, giant. exactly. Don't forget us. Yeah. We're an alligator. Preppy handbook was like, I know you're poor, but dress like you're rich. <laughs> this is a nice roadmap for the rest of your life. Khakis and polos. Certain things happen when you're a kid that give you a lovely roadmap for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. The best example is, and I, this is defined by fun size candy bars. <laughs> fun size is the first time kids get dicked over by advertising. Guess what's fun? Yeah. Less. Yeah. You're trick or treating <laughs> and you want a candy bar. Oh, here's an eighth of a candy bar. Oh, isn't that fun? That really is the fun size. Yeah. It's not what you thought you'd get. It's much less. Life is full of fun like that. Yeah, you're going to love it. Yeah, you got to have 70 more years of fun we're just gonna like ke- that. We're going to keep using the word fun to trick you your yeah. whole life. Now keep going to work, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that Billy Joel is also, also like his first hit came out? Billy then. Joel's that, the yeah. Anal Man. The Who's Anal Man? Is that what you just said? The no, Anal that's Man. a movie that came yeah. out much later, I'm sure. <laughs> um, if there's not a movie called Anal Man, I'll be. eat my hat. Yeah, there must be by now. When I think back to my childhood in the 70s, here's the weirdest thing about it. Yeah. Like, I remember that there was the village people. Sure. And there was 
Paul Lynn and Charles oh, Nelson Riley on Hollywood Twist. I loved them all. I had no idea. He had no idea. No idea. No, it didn't matter. Yeah. There were guys and there were guys that wore ascots. But that was all it was. <laughs> and the village people, it was like Kiss. Yeah. It was just like, they're awesome. They're in costumes. Mike Douglas. It never. Right? Was it Mike Douglas? Oh, no, he? Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin. I'm sorry. Merv. I'm sorry, Mike. Merv Griffin. I'm sorry, Merv. Mike makes Merv a day. Griffin. Yeah. Remember what Mike Donovan used to say about that? No. Mike makes my day. I don't know. A blowjob winning the lottery. Maybe. Mike Douglas? No. <laughs> You know, the funny thing about that period of time was these were some of the funniest people out there. Charles Nelson Riley, I freaking loved him. What was it? The Ghost of Mrs. Muir or whatever? Fine. Yeah, I just remember but everything from I ever game. saw him in. Yeah, Match Game. That's Match what I Game. If you ever watch Match Game on the reruns, it's on the Game Show Network. It's great because it's they, should just, they should just retitle it Six Shit Faced C List Celebrities. <laughs> Uh, Brett Summers, Charles Nelson Riley, and Sims. somebody else, and they're Everyone all hammered. Wanted. You got to go online and watch the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Oh, I have. It's fantastic. With, 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 and the Lidsville people are and in Kiss. it. The Kiss witch, is on it. Both witches. Kiss. Poo and the witch. Florence Henderson sings. And he says to Kiss, "I bet I know how you guys became a band. You got an argument, and someone said, why 'Why don't you kiss and make up?'" <laughs> and I'm like screaming at my computer, "How was that a fucking joke, buddy?" That's just the ingredients of a joke, but you didn't make it a joke. It's like the Bob it's, Hope rhythm without the punch. Yeah, it's like giving me a bowl of flour with an egg in it and calling it a cake. No, that's just a fucking bowl of flour with an egg in it, asshole. But can you imagine what the edit was like on that? No, we got to take that out. No, we got to take that out. No, we got to take that out. All we got left is the guests. <laughs> Everything Paul said has to come out. It's all out. <laughs> yeah. Mean, drunken Paul then. It was such a good setup. My favorite Paul in, this was a really good one. I remember it. I can't forget it. <laughs> but what happens is the guy says, oh, Paul Lynn for the center square in the wind. When a man falls overboard, people yell, man overboard. What do they yell when a woman falls overboard? And he just sort of leans into the mic and he goes, full steam ahead. <laughs> and that, that's like the crux of... How do we not know? <laughs> How is this something still being kept from the American public? Exactly. When that's the punchline and the whole dais, yeah. if you want to call it, the drunken six-pack dais or nine-pack, you know, they're all laughing. Committed bachelor Paul <laughs> Exactly. Imagine him on The Bachelor. Can't, We've gone oh, through four seasons, can't, can't find the right girl. <laughs> I remember when, when it came out that Rock Hudson was gay. Oh, yeah. It was like my parents got hit in the head with a shovel. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. Pictures come down. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was just, it, it just, it just stunned them. Because he was such a man's man. He was, yeah. He, he was, was manly. Yeah, he, well, that's the whole thing. I know you can't even mention his name because people shit themselves blind. But like, the weird <laughs> thing about Bruce Jenner is that he was like the biggest. Oh, my God. I he was, was the He was on the Wheaties, Wheaties box. box. He was the big, he was the most successful, best athlete. He was also a very charming man. He was lovely. He, when he, he's on, and he still is. When he was on the, yeah, when he was on the news and She still is. I'm so sorry. Why are you so full of hate? I, 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 Robbie! I, I made a mistake. And Why I, are you so full I'll of write hate? A, I'll write him a letter this morning and I'll say... Him, she! Mrs. You write her a letter! Mrs. Why are you so full of hate? Mrs. Bruce, if I could help in any way, I will. Is Mrs. that what you call him? Bruce. I'm not sure. Is that what no, you call that was, the, that was the lead in Jaws 2. Bruce the Shark's wife, Mrs. Bruce. It all comes back. <laughs> But he really was a hero to us as a kid. Yeah. It was like, uh, was it Mark Spitz after It was Mark Spitz and Bruce Jenner. And Bruce like Jenner, that was it. Guys. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. I mean, he's a nice man. And it, I've never seen the Kardashian thing. I can't watch that stuff. It just, it just makes me feel a lack in my own life. It makes me want to shower. <laughs> That's what I'm, so I couldn't figure it out. Now, how does he get involved with them people if he's a girl? 
I don't know if he's involved with them anymore. I think he was married to her. And but they did he create any kids? Yeah. yeah Those girls are his? I don't know. I don't freak out. I don't know. know. But all I know Do they is know? He, I think what happened was he spent enough time with them that one day he said, I got to become somebody else. <laughs> Political Talk with two guys from Boston. Tom Waits tells a story about going to Graceland and uh, there was a bullet hole in the slide on the play set for the kids. You know, his kids yeah. had a swing set and Elvis was just drunk and he shot the slide. <laughs> and Tom was like, yeah, that's when I went off him. Christ. <laughs> kids shouldn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's bad when Tom Waits is like, hey, man, maybe you got to chill out. Yeah, yeah, reel this in a little bit. <laughs> and Elvis famously hated Robert Goulet. When he would see Robert Goulet on television, he would shoot the television. Did he think he was what? stealing his essence? I don't know what it was because Elvis loved, like Elvis loved Tom Jones. He was in awe of Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. Roy Orbison was the one person he goes, I will not follow Roy Orbison. I can't go on after that. But Robert Goulet, he hated. He didn't give an answer why. I'm sure it's on the internet for some reason, yeah. but I think he just like. Is there like a good Roy Orbison movie? No, there's not. You're going to write it now. Was he that messed up? I don't know really anything. No, he had a horribly he tragic so, life. Yeah. yeah, he's like Job. And I believe Albino. Really? Yeah, that's, I think the... The glasses. I'm listening. The glasses and the hair. The gla- well, the hair was dyed and the glasses were... I, I, I could be wrong. And again, talk about Job. Right when his career takes off again, he drops dead. <laughs> what did he drop dead from? Heart attack. Heart, yeah. And he was literally like, he was in the Traveling Wilburys. He had this giant... Yeah. Career resurgence and right at his peak. That was it. Yeah. It was really, really terrible because life is short, cruel, and brutal. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Brought to you by Werther's Originals. (laughs) Kate Berlant, who do you not want to die? Oh, Who is a celebrity that when they die, you're going to go, oh. The fall from grace of Woody Allen is interesting because I completely, like when I I was getting into comedy as a teenager, I just loved Woody Allen movies and I read his plays and I was obsessed with any early recordings of him. And I just, Mm -hmm. that's someone who's been deflated sort of completely. It's hard because with Woody Allen and Bill Cosby and Roman Polanski, you do have to separate the art from the artist. I really like Off the Wall. I like Off the Wall more than Thriller. (laughs) I love... All of that Woody Allen stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think my favorite Woody Allen movie is Crimes and Misdemeanors. And what you realize when you look at it now, he was actually, he's on the other side of it. To me, you tell me if I'm wrong. To me, the entire point of the movie Crimes and Misdemeanors is that morality is its own reward. Right. And he certainly has a different view of it or is so completely convinced that he's done nothing wrong that it doesn't connect in that regard. And knowing what you know about him and suspecting what you suspect about him that hasn't been proven, it colors that. But you just have to remove yourself and go, yeah, but it's a great movie. Right. His stand-up is great. Bill yeah. Cosby's stand-up is masterful. Yeah. It's undeniably That's masterful. That's something, because I used to watch that when I was little and just, like, loved it so much. But I never had as much of, like, a personal connection to Cosby. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, my dad used to write for him. He was on like... one. Shut the, the front yeah, door. Yeah, to, How do we get this far into this and we don't bring uh, that up? He did. Yeah. It was It was like a weird situation because he never met him either. It was like... Uh-huh. Um, but... Uh, Stand up or the show? He wrote the show. He wrote for the show. Was your dad a, a TV He's writer? A playwright. And then he just stumbled into TV because he wrote 
Out of Gas on Lover's Leap, which um, Jason Patrick was in. That was uh-huh. like his first TV, sh- I mean, a stage show, I guess, or one of the first ones. And then I guess somebody saw that play, and and that was the time where they were like actively, like now there's enough TV writers to kill a small horse. But yeah. back then... There's also, they're in need. There are 350 scripted shows on television now. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's, that is a lot more than, yeah. they kind of like, some would say too many. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of scouted him out, Uh you know? So, uh, and then he started writing for him. I think the difference between like a Cosby and a Woody Allen and even Michael Jackson is that Cosby's act is so connected to morality that it's hard yeah. to listen to it. It's almost like if Ansel Adams, like you just knew he was into fracking or something. <laughs> you know? It, it's that sort of like disconnect, you know, where you can like, you know, you can watch, you know, you can listen to Thriller and it's fine because there's never a point in Thriller where he sings like, I'm not into kids, you know, but there is a point right. where Cosby posits himself as the, and that's what that judge argued when they released, yeah, when he released all those documents. Yeah. Know? The judgment, you're just too much of a hypocritical douchebag for me to handle this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it is one of those things where, like, he doth protest too much. Like, that's what he has to do to have some sort of moral equilibrium. Unless he's just a perfect sociopath. I think so. Like, all I remember is Sandusky's coaching. You know? That's a bad... Well, yeah, again, talk about people who hide in plain sight. The name of Jerry Sandusky's biography published before anything came out. Touched. Touched. Yeah. Barry Crimmins had the greatest. Like Everybody loved Joe Paterno and was like, no, Joe, say it ain't so, Joe. And then they took down the statue of Joe Paterno. And Barry Crimmins said they should have plowed down the stadium and left up the statue. <laughs> when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, that felt really sad to me. I think he was one of my first like favorite actors watching mm-hmm. P.T. Anderson movies, yeah. and that yeah. felt like really like kind of a robbery because he shouldn't have. Yeah, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have died. Well, yeah, it was shocking to me too because he was a big in the sober community for a while. He was a big guy in the sober community. Like he wasn't. Right. You know, he was trying to fight it. You know, it wasn't like too it was, sober. It for, at least relapse, that's what I heard yeah. is that. And clean because he was. Yeah. Was he in NA? I think he was in AA. So, I'm so sure. much for the second A. Right. <laughs> well, he's yeah. passed away. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. Uh, yeah, I feel bad now. I just know from. Well, I think everyone knows he had a drug yeah, problem. Everyone knows <laughs> <that>. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> Didn't he ski into a tree? No. But I, I no, think that, that was another thing where sometimes when you're involved, because you know, I've heard rumblings that the movies he was in before that, it was a problem. But mm-hmm. they were like, everybody was trying to shut up about it because right. they're like, this is a big movie. We need to get this movie made. Let's not have that in the papers right yeah. now. Not a death, but I found when Letterman retired, I was actually moved more than I thought I would be. Hadn't really seen the show in a long, long time, but it was such an iconic touchstone. And I think that's why my mother went bananas when Elvis died, because that's a part of your life at a certain time that nails you to a time in your life, a Proustian rivet to a time in your life. And then when that's pulled away, it underscores the fact that, no, that time is over and it's dead and it's never coming back. Yeah. And there's a, there's a bittersweetness. And I think that when Letterman first came out, like the first five years of that show was right when I got out of high school, right when I went into college, right when I started doing stand up. It was such a perfect 
thing for me at that time. And plus, it was in the early mid '80s where so much of pop culture was just such malarkey. Yeah, uh, he was one of the only like sarcastic, ironic voices. It was so important. And then uh, that when that show went, it was like, oh uh, yeah, that is. It is awful. And there's certain things that like will really teleport me back to that time, like especially the summer of 1982, where I worked at the drive-in and like every movie from the summer of 1982, Blade Runner, The Wrath of Khan, E.T., Poltergeist, like that summer is such a- What a summer, Jesus. (laughs) It was an amazing summer for films. It was the summer just before I went to college. It's such a completely specific, concrete three-month period of my life. That's like like over. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, yeah, that's gone. You know. I feel the same way when they canceled Yes, Dear for me. That was a huge, <laughs> huge loss. It was when my mom died and when they canceled Yes, <laughs> yes Dear. Yes, Dear, those two. This is kind of in the same vein. I was on a plane yesterday and I watched that movie Before Sunsets, that uh, yeah. Yeah. later movie. I'd never seen it before. I watched the last one in the series. I got really sad watching it because even the parts where the characters are like, like, I really like the movie, but sometimes the characters are douchey and I think that's like on purpose. Yeah. And then I had this moment where I'm like, Oh my God. Like I even miss being douchey in that way from 10, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the idealistic douchiness they had. There was a part of me and I'm only, you know, I'm only 31 and they, but they're like 22 in the movie. And you're like, Oh my God, that sort of outlook on life of me is so, is so gone now and has been replaced with this just jaded, hopeless, you know, yeah, like that, you know, ideal, it's so weird. That is so funny. Like I, I was thinking. I was watching the show Sense8, which is the Wachowski show. And there's these two guys in the show that live in, uh, I think, Nigeria or someplace or in Africa. And the guy says, uh, you know, my father says, if you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything, which is something that we tell people in high school. Like, you believe in yourself. You work hard. You will accomplish everything. And and then you sort of go, bullshit. (laughs) 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 If you believe in yourself and you work hard, that's good. Yeah. Period. Yeah. You probably aren't going to get what you want. Yeah. But you'll find something else. Right. It should be like, well, it'll probably be a good thing that you do this. Yeah. Well, that's the whole crimes and misdemeanors thing. Sometimes it's just good that you believe in yourself and you work hard. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there might not be a reward attached. People will ask me, like, you know, every time you, you know, we all bitch a lot about what we do and comedy and, 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 you know, like, uh, I was bitching about something. My friend was like, well, yeah, but think about like what you would have said when you started out comedy of all the stuff that you're bitching about now. And I'm like, that's totally true. But if you had asked me at 12, I would have thought I was going to win four Oscars. Sure. You yeah, know, like, yeah. like, yeah, 25 year old me would have been, or 24 year old would be like thrilled, you know, that I was able to not be a security guard anymore. But oh, yeah. when I was 10, I thought I was going to win an Oscar and be governor. When Bill Wyman quit the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards called Joey Stampanato, who is in a band called NRBQ, which is the world's greatest bar band. Uh huh. New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. And they've been around forever. And they're the world's greatest bar band. But most people don't know who they are. Yeah, I don't know who they are. Yeah. Joey is a great bassist, and he is in the band in the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, which is the movie that Keith Richards made about Chuck Berry. And then at the end of the movie, there's a big concert with Chuck Berry and Keith Richards, and Joey is the bassist in that band. So when Bill Wyman quit the Rolling Stones, this is in the whenever, late 90s or whatever, Keith had Joey Stampanato audition to join the Rolling Stones. And he flew to like, they were in like Nice or Cannes and he was flown out and he auditioned and cause Keith liked him. And then at the end of the day, Mick decided that they would just hire a session guy and 
keep the band a four piece and not a five piece. And so Joey said, no, you're not going to be in the Rolling Stones. And within the week, he was playing a bar in Western Massachusetts. Uh, And he's playing Rolling Stones covers. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like, well, uh, that's how it went. Uh, Yeah. Nine out of 10 people in life are the brown haired Gwyneth Paltrow from Sliding Doors. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's really funny. (laughs) But you see these people that like almost became the president. Right. And then they Gary Hart. John McCain. I mean, and I know a guy that knows a lot of these people. He's, he's a political operative. And, and I say, how does, how do you, they recover from that? And he said, Oh, they don't. Right. <laughs> and, oh. You know, no, you don't recover from that. They're, they're all forever changed. Oh. Like, the John guy. McCain is not the same guy that he was before he ran for president. Mitt Romney is not the same guy that he was before he ran for president. Yeah. Mitt and Rom- Mitt Romney is the only person in America that didn't know he lost. There were barges full of fireworks anchored in the Boston Harbor that were waiting to go out really to celebrate Mitt Romney winning the presidency. And Obama knew it like three weeks before the election because they had this really micro-targeted, like we need these people, these people, these people, these people, these people. And that clicks everything over. That runs the board. And the Romney campaign had no idea because they were drinking their own Kool-Aid. Yeah. It's like when you watch the Fox News that night, they're in disbelief because they've been listening to their own bullshit. Yeah. Well, it just seems like compared to Obama's first campaign, where, of course, it was all about ushering this change. And even though, you know, he was in a lot of ways just as establishment as Hillary. Of course. Uh, but uh, the second one was so it was it was just much more like a surgeon. Like, here's this incision here. Here's this. You really did see how powerful his group of people were yeah. because they didn't need to. They almost were like, no, no, just fix the fender. Let's do, let's just fix there. Well, Rick yeah. Overton has a great line about the presidency. It's like the country is a Mack truck. And every four years we decide whether to put a bulldog or an eagle on the hood. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is Obama had nothing to do with gay marriage. It was gay people that made gay marriage yeah. happen. He just you stepped know? out of the way. Yeah, it's like the yeah. leaders don't lead. The people lead and the leaders follow. So it was so strange that he was already so depressed about this video getting out of him fucking his mate's wife because his mate was trying to cheer him up. That's Very common. strange. That's well, common. it's all sad because he's one of our great intellectuals. Yeah. And one, of our, <laughs> one of our great thinkers and he's on the verge of like, you know. You know. Before he came about, there was a very popular character named the Hulk that I'm assuming had some sort of that's trademark. Right. That's what his character is. The angrier he gets, the stronger he is. But did he go, I also want to be named the Hulk. Didn't Marvel go, You can I just be, I'm Spider-Man. Yes. Actually, they had to change it to Titan Sports. Uh, they had to. They did have a legal suit over that. I'm sorry. As well, they should have. Wrestling nerd. Same with Apple. The Beatles but, had a company called well, Apple, and then the other company. Well, How far we have come to jacking off to Linda Carter <laughs> to 1960s British trademark violations. <laughs> Hope I'm not turning you gals on too much out there. What's so staggering about this is the WWE have denounced him and said, we try and be racially equal, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> the WWE is where, like, they have black guys play witch doctors. <laughs> to the extent where, like, this guy, like, knows WWE. The reason he's laughing is it's so racially insensitive, he doesn't even know which black guy I mean. There were five. There was, like, Kamala the Ugandan giant who ate people, and then they went, ah! I don't think it's clear enough he's a witch doctor. So they got the next guy to do to, to do it with a stethoscope. <laughs> yeah. 
And every black guy that comes in is called Johnson. So it's very strange that they would then go, you know, we're all for racial equality, whereas they have had the epitome of racial stereotypes. That is a very interesting point that you made, Brandon. That sensitivity is moving at such a breakneck. I mean, who would... Gay marriage was not even on the agenda 10 years ago. Like, like 10 years ago, people were like, you're out of here. No, it's not going to happen. And then... Things just elevate. This is a true story. I was at a... Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I was at a, a little farmer's market in L.A., and I'm walking around, and I see this little four-year-old boy crying, looking around. And so I, I go up to him. I go, are you okay? Did you, did you lose your mom? And he goes, I have two dads. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, fuck me, Connor. I didn't get your dossier. And then, and then like, I'm up, well, look, I'm not making a judgment on your family. I, I came from a place of privilege, and I made an assumption on your... And, you know, look, next year when you're five, we're going to laugh about this. Let's just be honest. But no, it really, it really was. It was just like, how dare I ask him that? How dare I make that assumption? How old was he? He was like a four-year-old kid. He was just a little what? kid. Yeah. This is a really big time of this. I was, I was telling Gilbert earlier. I was... The uh, interesting stuff we talk about before the show. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, because we're more arcane, we talked about the Chief J. Strongbow sex tape, which is on 8 millimeters, so it's not as easily available. <laughs> but... Um, I'm so sorry that since I stepped onto this, you've now started making references that only two people enjoy. Oh, everybody knows Billy White Wolf and Chief J. Strongbow. I don't have to walk you through professional wrestling in the early 1970s. (laughs) Where's everybody going? I was sitting at a red light in L.A., driving my kids to camp, their little day camp. I thought of a funny turn of a phrase. So I dropped them off, and I parked the car, and I tweeted, People engage in fetishistic sex to avoid intimacy. Oddly, the more someone wants to tie you up, the less they want any strings attached. <laughs> Cute! In the Reader's it's... Digest world, we would call that a smiler. <laughs> right, it's a string joke. It's a yeah. string joke. Yeah, it's a string joke. It's a expert. joke about string. I love string. 327 professional dominatrixes came down on me via Twitter like a ton of shit. Like, you have no fucking idea what it's about. It increases intimacy, you slack-jawed faggot. Why don't you go back? Now that sounds... And they literally accused me of punching down from a position of privilege on a um, minority group in society. And I was like, I'm sorry. You don't get to pee on people for a living and be a victim. Yeah. And if you have to dress up like Peter Chris to have sex, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if you can't laugh at yourself, you've got a big problem. I once actually got walkouts at a fetish expo. And at fetish expos, for some reason, there's a lot of pervy comics in how did you? How did you end exactly. up at a fetish expo? There's a lot of pervy comics in uh, Britain, and they presume I'm in one Britain? of Britain? Yeah, yeah. There are. <laughs> at fetish expos... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that... People who are innately introverted and narcissistic, yes. who spend 90% of their time alone in the hotel room, develop slightly left-of-center yes. sexual proclivities? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the more normal the guy, the more pervy they are. And they all presume that I'm one Easy. of them because of the nature of my rambunctiousness or whatever. And at fetish expos, they don't like one another. Different fetishes are, like, really anti each other's fetishes. And they had me do comedy at a fetish expo, and I made an AIDS joke, and a bloke dressed as Hitler stood up 
up and went, you're disgusting, and stormed out. <laughs> Brian, you have a lot of friends, and uh, you, you travel in the, heavily in the metal world. Yeah. Why are you trying to keep talking about Hitler? I don't give a fuck. No, but, <laughs> no, but I find this interesting, because comedians are innately pervy, and we don't dress like that. A lot of metal guys do dress like that. Are they completely... Is it the same thing? Or I would think because they, if you're in a band, you can have so much sex anyway, you don't need to do that. George Carlin once said, comedian groupies are like somebody that watches an organ grinder and then fucks the monkey. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like, if you're in a band, you know, it's like, the kind of bands I hang out with don't get that much pussy. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been to a Slayer show? The female fans look like Richard Ramirez wearing a wig. <laughs> They're a fucking bummer. So, <laughs> now, now. I was once on the Lamb of God bus, and um, oh no, no, actually it was every time I die, and uh, the guy that played Leatherface, you know him? Yes, yes. So, the saw, uh, no, yeah, and the new ones, in the in the new ones, great stuff. The he new came saw on stuff. the bus. None of the guys on the bus were getting laid, but somehow Leatherface was, and he took her into the bathroom. And the bathroom door opens, and those buses have tiny, tiny bathrooms. And Leatherface is, like, bigger than me. And he's fucking this poor girl from behind. And he looks at all of us and goes, this is how Leatherface does it. (laughs) So that's my one sex uh, with bands thing. That's it. That's all I got. Do you remember Tom Baker from Doctor Who? Nope. I was out of town somewhere, and in my hotel... They were having this kind of meeting or something of, like, the furries. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're the worst. That I don't get at all. They dress up in gorilla suits. They dress up like the banana splits. Yes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And they fuck. I'm assuming everybody here knows what furries are. It's people who dress up. I like how many people here are on. Yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I don't. Yes, I don't. No. Why? That was, sorry. Is it in the I, Bible? If it's not in yes, the Bible, I don't. I don't know what it is. One of my right off the boat? Of course I know what furries are. <laughs> yeah, it's people who... It's, 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 I do think a lot of that is because of the internet. I think in the 1920s, like every town had one guy that was a furry that we didn't know about. And then... But now they can all meet online, and then and it just and it mushrooms out. It's just the really weird one for me is the there's also adult babies. Oh yes, yes. No, that one I I get. Yeah. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? And full circle, Elvis used to fill his pants with whipped cream and watch women in white panties wrestle. Is that true? Yeah. But again, it's just like it's That's near the off. end. He was running out of shit, clearly. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like a exact- week before he died, he was running out of th- things to fucking get it off to. <laughs> I, I actually think that's exactly what it is. In the way that, like, you end up watching sailors boning a squid online. Right. Like, eventually, you're just like, oh, what else is there? What else is there? You know, it's just like, that's why Wi Fi has totally destroyed the alien abduction industry because in the 90s before high-speed internet there were alien abductions all the time 
because aliens are just monitoring our broadcast signals. But now that everything we do is available to see, it proves the theory that the more people know about us, the less they really want to hang. <laughs> you know, and they're like, maybe we should go visit Earth. Well, judging from the internet, it's largely populated by cats who can't judge the distances they're jumping. <laughs> But there's also some corpse-fucking genocide and two girls that have a game with diarrhea that isn't, let's get the fuck away from this diarrhea. <laughs> Maybe we can go to a different planet this time. That's my theory. It goes to my theory. Human behavior. Is there a bottom? <laughs> How do they pass the time on the Lamb of God bus? Well, that's the thing about metal dudes. Like... You would think that they're these scary guys, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but most of them aren't. Like, I've hung out with Cannibal Corpse, and they're the sweetest dudes ever. And then you meet Oasis, and they're the two biggest dicks to ever be a dick. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, metal dudes are just mellow dudes, and and they're nerds, most of them. Because you have to fucking sit in your room for a long time to get that good at guitar. Yeah, well, um, Piggy Demon from Rob Zombie's band is a very good friend of mine. John Five, you ever met that dude? I've met like, John Five. One and, of the biggest and, nerds ever, but a badass. Yeah, yeah, Piggy Demon is one of the nicest, sweetest people I know. Uh-huh. Have you heard the Noel Gallagher Maroon 5 story? So it's a Hollywood party, and Adam Levine, the lead singer of Maroon 5, goes up to Noel Gallagher, and he goes, Oh, I'm such a big fan of your band. Oh, I love you guys so much. I'm Adam Levine from Maroon 5, and Noel Gallagher goes, You're fucking shit, mate. What are you doing? You're coming up here, talking to me. You're fucking shit. You're lowering the game. You're embarrassing all of us. Fuck off. <laughs> so then later on that night at the party, Adam Levine is coming out of the toilet and he bumps into Noel Gallagher and goes, you still in the building? I saw you, you fucking shit. Can't believe you stayed here. And Adam Levine goes, this is my house. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that story? No. <laughs> I hate both of those motherfuckers, but like, I kind of like Noel better now. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder great. if that happened with like Count Basie and Glenn Miller. <laughs> fuck you, Glenn. What did you say? Fuck you, Count. <laughs> Your Elvis story also triggered for me. My mom once put on Hard Day's Night, the mm-hmm. movie, and like sat me down to watch it. I remember her sitting on the edge of the bed and just sobbing. <laughs> Like crying, really? crying, watching it because it was just so. It just brought her back clearly, and she was like trying to communicate to me the importance of it. And I loved the Beatles. Sure, that was. I you mean, have to. Yeah, but like growing up, but I really was like, I love the Beatles, and like I knew about the Beatles. Yeah. But um, I just remember oh, that. So funny. I saw that movie in utero <laughs> in the theater. That movie famously scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Really. Yes, when it looks like John Lennon goes down the drain of the tub. Okay. He's in the tub, and then he pulls the plug, and then he's not in the tub when the water's gone. Yeah. It's just a gag. Yeah. And I thought, I was really little. I was like four. I thought that would happen to you, and I lost my mind. (laughs) (laughs) You pull back from the tub, and then like the hand towels say, Mark, David, and Chap. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's how we did it. All right, no. um, a cheap joke. I had to go to therapy after seeing E.T. <laughs> oh really? God. E.T. terrified me. I truly went to therapy. How did... No, oh. What was it about E.T.? 
I don't really know. I think I was just so terrified and I was just sure he was going to show up, show up in my room. Um, it would have been a good show up though. By the way, I, because I worked at the theater that summer, the music cues on the, if, if it's on TV today and I hear a music cue, I'm like, Oh, I got to go open the doors. Oh, I got to change the popcorn. Oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta see the projections. What's underneath? It was your, like, there's all these jobs that you have to do. It was your the Vietnam. Theater. It really was. It was like that summer. And the other one was, uh, it was, there were five, three theaters in my hometown and the neighboring towns. And there's one theater that had, uh, upstairs and downstairs. Then there was a threeplex and then the drive in and I kind of floated and the double, uh, upstairs and downstairs all summer long the year before was for your eyes only and Superman two, And that's when I worked in that theater. And if I hear either one of those music, like for your, got to get the doors mm. or got to get the doors. <laughs> it's like, all this, it's yeah. like it drilled into my head. ET doesn't age well. Really? Like, I put it on for my kids. Like this is going to blow your mind. And they could not have cared less. What movies do they like that were, that were from the seventies or eighties? None yet. Like they're Pixar, they're yeah. all right. about Pixar. Like when 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 my oldest daughter was three, she watched Monsters Inc. more than the editor saw it. <laughs> I mean, it was just twice a day she yeah. watched Monsters Inc. I want to show her Jaws, yeah. but I don't want to ruin going in the ocean for her. Right, and I know that it will. Like I saw Jaws when it came out, and I was eleven, and she's thirteen. She could handle it, but I've never gone in the ocean and had a fish swim by my foot and not think, ha, ah, it's over. Yeah, it's over. And I don't want to ruin the ocean for her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I wanted to still have, I wanted to still have the ocean. Jaws is so good. 1975 was very 70s. <laughs> a lot of feathered hair. No very internet. Bad. No internet. I, like, I know it's, it's nothing new to talk about the proliferation of the internet and how it's changed everything, but devastating. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of really screwed my life up more and more. I just feel, I feel like I actually don't have memories the way that I did pre-internet. It's certainly, you know what? It's affected family photos. All of our photos now are of from course. our phones, like in our family photo albums on the computer. It just exists. It just drops off. Yeah. It's like imaginary. The yeah. Ar- it's like an imaginary archive. I just started shooting actual film again uh-huh just to actually have some tangible evidence yeah. in my life i just because, bought a holga oh nice yeah. yeah but uh even that just feels good just to ha- sure film is great yeah i agree completely this is interesting and apropos of nothing and it means nothing but i was watching the little trailer for the new star wars the behind the scenes footage and a lot of the aliens in this new version are practical a lot of the effects are practical which just mm-hmm. looks great. And because the sets in the originals were practical because they didn't have CG. And you can always tell a great movie that is still as powerful as it was the day it was released and bombed specifically because of E.T. John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm. Which came out like literally the week after E.T. When everybody was, this lovable alien came and stole our hearts. And then it's like, hey, here's a movie where aliens are the worst thing you can imagine. I've never seen the thing. And people oh, are amazing. like, it's amazing. I'll it's amazing. It. And people were like, fuck you. <laughs> people hated it that summer because, but all the effects. I are thought pr- you were going to say Mac and me for a second. <laughs> Mac and me. But all the effects in the thing are practical. And you look at it today, it could have been made today. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. timeless uh, with the exception of like the thing that really gives it away is the computer chess. Yeah. Like the really bad pong level <laughs> computer chess. 
but it's amazing and you can just tell and in the remake of the th- in the sequel to the thing that was a remake of the thing that was in and of itself a remake of the thing you can tell the creatures are cg and you can tell there's a flatness there's a there's a it's just an element to them that you go yeah it's fake i think that like though now people who were i mean under the age of 10 or under the age of maybe 15 or like well that looks fake like they think cgi yeah looks real. well that's what it's about now is like fake it's like calling out what's fake and yeah. what's real like that's the barometer for what's good uh, my 13 year old is a really is a nerdy kid i got one a one of three right. and um walking dead so 13 year old girl her favorite shows walking dead you know it's, yeah. like, it's like yeah. i think she's just trying to get on my good side <laughs> but i was telling you star trek when i was your age star trek was my world and three says dad <laughs> and she literally said it's gotta have green screen i can't do this i can't <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll like appreciate it more when she's a little bit older. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, their eyes are just like, what the hell is this? I'm wondering what they'll think of Jaws because Jaws doesn't look all that awesome. No. But you don't see it all that much. Right. Yeah. The only really bad shot is when it, that long shot when it jumps up on the boat. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, like this. It's it, like trying to. Yeah. yeah. It's moving like Abe Lincoln in the, in the Hall of Presidents. <laughs> yeah. Too much synchronous. But it does look real. You know, it looks like a shirt. It, just moves. Not, it's not too slow. You look down the mouth where it's like yeah. really like rubbing up against the. Why didn't he shoot the tank the minute he threw it in its mouth? And why was it chewing on an air tank like it was a cigar? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> I'm going to. All right. We're going to end it here and I'm going to blow just, people's minds. Ruin Jaws. I've come to the conclusion that that movie is fake. <laughs> it's definitely fake. Jaws, two acts. It's not a three act movie. It's two acts. Hmm. And the act break is when they go out to sea and they do that shot through the jaws of the shark. That's the end of the first act, and then the end of the movie is the end of the second act. Yeah, I guess you're right. Aristotle rolls over in his grave. What the heck? <laughs> and Brody, Quint, and Hooper are Ethos, Logos, Pathos. Yeah. Also, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Mm. Same triumvirate. Me, myself, and Irene. <laughs> <laughs> the Farrelly Brothers versions of the Three Stooges. The other interesting thing, a Steven Spielberg movie, looking at the laws of screenplays, Indiana Jones, completely irrelevant in the story, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, because he does, at the end of it... He does nothing. He does nothing. The, all he says is, shut your eyes. Yeah. He doesn't have any... Like, his, Never sighed. I was getting my... You're kidding me. Nails done in utero. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's what I thought, too. He doesn't his job do in the movie is to prevent the Nazis from getting the Ark. He fails. The Nazis open the Ark, and the Ark defends itself. The only thing that might have changed had he not interfered was that Hitler would have opened the Ark, and there would have been no World War II. <laughs> <laughs> so Indiana Jones might have caused World War II. Also in Goldfinger, James Bond accomplishes almost nothing in Goldfinger. In it is kind of funny though, like they're like, all right, Indian Jones, you can either try to find this relic from ancient times or you can try to help us shut down this concentration camp. And he's like, no, no, this, this, you can't put a concentration camp into a museum. I'm going to get know? this bobble. <laughs> barbecue, barbecue, barbecue. Our barbecue is prepared especially for you. Count Basie, when he would play with the Rat Pack, Dean Martin was like an effortlessly funny guy. He was genuinely funny. And he would go on stage and do these jokes. Like he would look back at the Count Basie Orchestra and go, you guys look like half a chess set. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it was funny because it was Dean, and it was funny. And then Frank Sinatra would just steal Dean Martin's jokes, but make them all sound like horrible threats. <laughs> and he would, he would try to be funny. He goes, you guys look like half a chess set. I was like, yeah, well, don't yell at the man. <laughs> It was ostensibly in our lifetime. It was the late 60s, but it was such a completely fucking different world. Sammy Davis Jr. used to jump into Dean Martin's arms and he would go, I'd like to thank the NAACP for this award. I mean, would do, yeah. Yeah. All of these horrible, horrible things. Do you but, remember when they did the TV movie of the Rat Pack? Yes, and I do. Was, Didn't Bobby Slayton play Joey Bishop in I that? I don't remember. Well, who was that actor who played Sammy Davis? Uh, oh, I know. Um, not Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle. Yeah. So, by the way, did that with two eyes, which is not easy. <laughs> I heard he had one removed for he, he's he committed method, so hard. In, yeah, yeah. in order to make it more correct, like back then they did black jokes about him all the time, all the time. and it was fine. Yeah. But now they had to do where the other guys were doing black jokes and there'd be a close-up on Don Cheadle with tears in his eyes. <laughs> with tears in his eyes. Yeah, uh, yeah, with tears in his One tear. Yeah. Why? Was, are you doing an impression of that Indian looking at garbage again? No, I'm sad that you're making racist jokes. Yeah. <laughs> That's why, to me, the Caitlyn Jenner thing is so fascinating because we are right in the middle of, like, you can't talk about that. It's off limits. And, like, three months months ago you could and now you can the irony of caitlin jenner is she is purportedly off limits for jokes so now we get to give caitlin jenner all the privacy and the dignity that her family is so famous for craving <laughs> um and two, in one announcement, uh, he went from a guy that had too much plastic surgery to a woman that hadn't had enough yet. <laughs> Is the Rachel Dolezal story still big? The head of the NAACP who turned I out. think so. The uh, black-white woman that ran yeah, the white-black organization. She calls herself transracial now, which I don't know how you feel. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like, can we turn down the self-defining just for five seconds? My theory is people have the right to define themselves as long as I find it funny. <laughs> well, you know what? Although I wasn't born absolutely batshit fucking crazy, I still consider myself black. <laughs> yeah. The gender thing is different because there is a time when we are both genders in utero, I believe. And at a very early point, it uh, switches. I remember that. I remember that. Now, now I remember do we... that. <laughs> Does everyone have to say that Caitlyn Jennings is a beautiful woman? <laughs> No, but that's the great thing. The minute he became her, immediately began being judged on her looks. Uh, she made 75 cents on the dollar. Like, everything, everything went right down the hill. Okay, it's up to you. I don't believe she has glass. had the final stage of the surgery, which is what it all comes down to. Is that going to be a pay-per-view thing? Or? I don't know. <laughs> And I think that that's 90% of men's sort of like, huh, I don't think it has anything to do with gender identity. I just think it's the biological revulsion towards the idea of having, I mean, even the doctor that does the surgery is like, all right, guys, let's go. She's under, oh, God, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't want to do this. Because guys love their, that's why we send pictures of them to everybody. Don't, don't ever send a dick pic to anyone. No one wants to see it. It would be as if your girlfriend sent you a photo of her feelings. <laughs> you 
would not know what to do with it. <laughs> I could never get the camera in the right. It's just so fucked up. I've tried. <laughs> Don't open the text I just sent you. <laughs> Brian keeps sending me these aerial photos of rivers. Oh, my God! <laughs> Talk about, like, sex tapes. Is there nothing else on? I mean, is television so bereft of value that the only thing you can do is watch yourself doing something that you did earlier? The list of things that is before me watching me have sex Everything. is pretty goddamn long. Yeah. I would rather watch Florence Henderson quietly reading. <laughs> Do you jack off to yourself fucking? I, I jack <laughs> off to Florence Henderson reading. Who wouldn't? I mean, do people come home from work, like, you know, fucking long day at work, and it's like, oh, honey, put on the tape of us fucking last night. <laughs> I, I just want to relax. I gotta regrout all the plumbing in that house on Milwaukee Drive, boy. Can I just watch us screw from Thanksgiving of 2006? Crank it up, sweetheart. Well, that makes sense. Like, watching old sex tapes makes sense. Because you can go, remember when we weren't fucking disgusting. <laughs> Like people from the twenties that are fucking and like instead of saying the N word, they're like going Vodio no, Vodio no, Vodio no, I can do, I can do. <laughs> fucking in sepia, overcranked like a little rascals. End of our festivities, Brandon. Where can people see you? Uh, I have my own podcast, The Brendan Burns Show, and I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival from here. Brian Posehn, where can people see you? You're off to a technical rehearsal, so i get to, I got to get you out of here. My podcast is called Nerd Poker. It's a bunch of idiots playing Dungeons and Dragons. Blaine Kapatch, your buddy. Ken Daly, yes. Bunch of funny bastards. I have a new special called uh, Criminally Posehn coming out. I'm in uh, Bob and David, a uh, new season of Mr. Show, essentially, for Netflix. Excellent. Now, did... Um your new special, you shot that at, during Comic-Con and Bobcat directed that? Is that yes, correct? It, yeah, it was fucking Excellent. awesome. Yeah, 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 he's the best. Let's not do Eddie. Gilbert... <laughs> Eddie, where can we see you? You can see me in Winnipeg. I keep wanting to do this country. Uh, Winnipeg, the Odd Block Festival. Check out my Netflix special, In Ruins, and uh-huh. my podcast, Pep Talks. Which is an excellent. And, and the great Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. You can hear it on gilbertgottfried.com. Subscribe to on iTunes and sideshownetwork.tv. And my Twitter account is Real Gilbert. That's right. The Real Gilbert. Get the real one. And that is, of course, a stop to the Stuart Gordon film, The Amazing Colossal Man. Yes, yes, the, the Burt Gordon. Yeah, Burt Gordon. Yeah, I Bert said Stuart Gordon. Gordon. Burger. Because his middle initial was I. So Burt I. Gordon, so big. Oh. Yeah. But here's the question, and I know everybody, before I sign off, as you all know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, the sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man was called War of the Colossal Beast. In War of the Colossal Beast, <laughs> half of his face is gone, and yes. his eye is an empty skull socket. I don't think you can physically do that. <laughs> so are you saying those weren't too realistic, those movies? I, I'm beginning to think they're fake. Yeah. <laughs> 
Here's a question I'll leave it with. I'm Danny Gould. You can see me on DannyGould.com. And if you know this podcast, you know where you can find me. But here's a great question about an old horror movie that's always vexed me. The original King Kong. Yes. They knock him out with gas bombs. Somehow they get him to New York. The next thing you see is on the Broadway marquee. Carl Denham's find, Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. You go in the theater, they open the curtain, and there's Kong, chained to a steel structure. Then the people start taking pictures of him, and he freaks out and escapes. If he didn't escape, what was the show? (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, like Goldfinger, people are talking about how much better the early James Bond movies were. Like Goldfinger, supposedly the greatest Bond movie of all, has an all-female private air force (laughs) named Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. (laughs) No. Yeah. The female lead in Goldfinger is named Pussy Galore with the classic name, (laughs) with the classic exchange in the film, I'm Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. (laughs) And when they're talking to each other at the end of the movie, she picks up the, whatever, the two-way radio in the airplane, and she goes, champagne leader to champagne one. Like, it's, like, it's so, it's what do you so think is preposterous. The best Bond movie ever? The best Bond movie or my favorite Bond movie are two different things. Or I guess both. My favorite is Thunderball. Yeah. It's just because it's the one I really remember watching on TV and just like, oh, my God. Nah. But we were so poor and and so, like, deprived as a kid the thing that blew me away in thunderball was that he had an in-ground pool (laughs) not that he had a private island or a private island here's an in-ground pool like in the godfather the thing that blew me out was that they went to a restaurant and it wasn't someone's birthday (laughs) when michael killed sterling hayden it's like it wasn't even his birthday they went to italian food The best Bond movie is the one that you remember when you were a kid. The best version of well, Saturday they say Night that, Live. Yeah, they say that when you were whatever you were when you were thirteen years old. Yeah, the best Saturday Night Live is the one that you remember when you were thirteen years old. It's, it's all the same. You clearly must have a favorite Bond movie. Oh Kate. my God, please! For me, it's a uh, it's hard. It's um. Orbs for have sale. You, have you seen? <laughs> 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 yeah, well, that's how they yeah. do. That's how they make those titles. Yeah, They're just random words. Yeah. Have you ever seen a James Bond movie? Watch this. Never. <laughs> Our heads. Blow Doesn't up your like boyfriend like put them on? No. <laughs> how how was that? Have you ever seen a Clint Eastwood movie? Yeah, for sure. No, I mean like not when he directed like a, a Clint Eastwood man with no name killing people. God, it's actually devastating. I feel like the only Western I've ever seen is The Searchers. Well, that's a good one. Which is like, yeah, but I've been, you know, it's like, and by the way, the star of the movie, a bigoted motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) But why would you see a James Bond movie? It's like, oh, no, but it's this sociopath who just discards women. It's like like me going to guys. You've never seen a (laughs) rom-com? What's your favorite? Just like going to any random guy walking out of UFC. Julia Roberts. What's your favorite Sarah Jessica Parker movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Although Unforgiven, that's a great, that's probably my favorite Quinn Eastwood. I think that's everybody's favorite Quinn Eastwood what movie, is? right? Unforgiven. Yeah, although even that movie, when you watch it, like, what's the name of the journalist that's following him around? Jewy Jewman? What's the name of that character? <laughs> One second, I can't. It's, it's Saul, uh, the actor that plays him is a Saul, uh, 
Uh, yeah. But he's he's such a terrible stereotype. <laughs> he is. Excuse me. <laughs> it's so awful. <laughs> it's so awful. <laughs> I don't shoot. I don't yeah, shoot. I, I love money. <laughs> I love money. Yeah. Yeah, I never noticed that before, but it's like totally, it's 100% on the money. On yeah. the money. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> As it always is with us. <laughs> if we've come to any conclusion, E.T. didn't age well. I mean, investigate that yeah and you sublimated your conflict about wanting to love woody allen's plays and books and films by transferring it onto et exactly who only wanted to help you and it worked and i learned nothing today (laughs) (laughs) one last little thing i was very privileged this year to give the keynote address at the just for laughs festival in montreal and i posted my speech on facebook And a lot of people liked it. So if you haven't heard it and you want to hear it, here it is. Oh, this is wonderful. I feel like I'm speaking at my own funeral. Here's a phrase I don't want at my funeral. No one should have to die like that. Who knew those snakes were poisonous? Let me start reading a list of people who've hurt me in the business. No. I believe that is the tradition. Uh, I'm here to talk about someone that you might not know that I have a relationship with. Um, I'm known mostly as a solo performer, but I actually happen to work with possibly the greatest comedy partner in the world. He, He is the best straight man in the business. He's hilariously funny. And his name is Jesus Christ. No. Knock, knock, who's there? No one. I've been here the whole time. Uh, I started doing stand-up comedy uh, 11 days after I graduated from high school. I was 17 years old, or as Comedy Central would say, nearing retirement. And I remember somewhere between my first and second open mic, I lived outside of, I lived about 45 minutes outside of Boston and I drove into Boston and performed at the somewhat legendary, somewhat legendary Ding Ho. It was the first time I ever did a set. Lenny Clark was the host of the open mic. And uh, somewhere in between my first set and my second set, I was sitting on my friend Johnny Condon's front porch in my hometown of Hopedale, Mass. And his dad, Ed Condon, who looked like Santa Claus if he shaved, gave me some advice. He said, Goldie, what you want to do is, you want to learn like a song and a little soft shoe? You don't want to go up there and blow your wad and then have nothing. And I took two things from that. Uh, I don't want to discuss my wad with anyone's dad. Blown or otherwise. My wad is my business. And the second thing I took was that there is really nothing worse than advice from someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, even if it's well-intentioned. And uh, it is my hope that my little comment today doesn't fall into that category. Um, This festival, Just for Laughs, is the the living definition of show 
business. We are here under the Comedy Pro banner. It's artists and executives, show and business, warily eyeing each other, each member of each group, desperately hoping they can find another member of the opposing group that has a mutual creative spark, a mutual interest, a dedication, a talent, an insight, an ability, somebody they can use. This is neither right nor wrong. This is nature's way. This is the way this business works. And I don't think I am being cynical when I say there is not a person in this room who wouldn't pop out your eyeball and use the empty socket as a toehold to climb up and get something they wanted off a high shelf. I grew up in Massachusetts. I was the fifth of six kids, a Catholic man with a Jewish woman's name. (laughs) And when you have eight people in a three-bedroom house, the term serenity doesn't come to mind often. Uh, There are very few things that everyone agrees on, and there are painfully few instances in which everyone is quiet. One of the few such instances that I remember in my home, for whatever reason, was when George Carlin was on television. Whenever George Carlin was on television, everyone shut up. No one spoke. Everyone listened. And I grew up fascinated by that power, that one person with a microphone did all that. We had a two-screen movie theater in my hometown, and when I was in high school, I worked as an usher there. I mean, it was, there were two auditoriums. It wasn't two screens in one room. Um, but that's coming. Um, that's coming soon. Um, uh, and when I worked there in high school, I saw the first Richard Pryor concert film, Richard Pryor Live in Concert. I saw it about 20,000 times because I worked there. The other movie in the theater was Superman with Christopher Reeve. And more people went to see Richard Pryor live in concert. All the special effects in the world versus one guy with a microphone. And one guy with a microphone did all that. So not very surprisingly, you don't need Freud to figure this out, I became a comedian. In fact, I never really wanted to do anything else. I certainly don't know how to do anything else. And when I first came to this festival some years ago, back in 19... (coughs) (coughs) (laughs) By Comedy Central standards, I'm now a magic talking tree. People won't watch people who are older than them. That's why you'll never see a kid in high school watching a professional baseball game. Doesn't happen. No kids went to see Jurassic Park. All those people are in their 30s. But I'm not bitter. Um, When I first came to this festival years ago, I was on fire! 
I was so hot. I had a manager, I had an agent, and I was going to come here, and somebody was going to see me, and I was going to get a deal, and I was going to make it. And two-thirds of that happened. I came here, and I got a deal to make a pilot, and all of the agents and all of the managers and all of the development executives lined up and told me what a genius I was, and I believed them. And we all went back to L.A., and meetings were held, and parking was validated, and... (laughs) And a pilot was written, and... My last memory of that specific episode was we were pitching the pilot at NBC, which at the time had comedy. <laughs> and, and, and they passed on the pilot in the room. Now, they don't do that often, but they reserve that right for when they really hate it. And the studio executive who I met here at this festival who told me I was such a genius and who is a decent person in his own right. However, my last memory of him was of him running a football pattern to avoid being seen leaving the building with me. So I just went back to doing what I do. I walked on a stage and I picked up a microphone. The next year I got another pilot, and the year after that I got another pilot, and over the course of a few years I had my hand in more pilots than an Air Force proctologist. (laughs) And at one point during this annual cycle, there used to be a show called Life Goes On, and it starred an actor with Down syndrome named Christopher Burke. And you'll have to forgive my language, but I want to make the quote accurate. Uh, At one point during this cycle of repetitive annual pilots, uh, my mother called me up and said, Honey, they gave that retarded boy a show. Why won't anyone out there give you a chance? (laughs) Sure, he's retarded. Retarded like a fox. But every year I would get a pilot, and it wouldn't go. And I would go back on stage, and I would pick up a microphone, and I would think to myself, maybe next year, maybe next year, I'll make it. And over time, I started to become pretty good at walking on stage and picking up a microphone. To the point that, when I was finally summoned to audition for Saturday Night Live, I was beyond ready. I was ripe. I was dripping. I was flown to Chicago with two other comedians. And I walked on stage and I moved the building. You couldn't 
touch me. I had one of those sets, you get maybe six of them in your life, where everything works and the laughter erupts from the audience like a series of cluster bombs. And I remember flying back to L.A. with the other two comedians thinking, I'm going to get on Saturday Night Live. So this is what it's like when your dream comes true. And immediately in my idiot mind, I started to think, do I need to buy boxes? What do I do with my apartment? What about my monster models? And I looked at the other two comedians who were sitting with me in the plane, and I remember thinking, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, you'll get your time. Don't, don't get too close to my exhaust fumes. I'm burning too hot right now. Now, I dined out on that story more than one time, I can assure you. And a couple of years ago, uh, my wife at the time um, went to New York to see a play that Chris Rock was in. And she went backstage when speaking to Chris after. And when she came back from New York, she went, Honey, honey, you know that story you tell about auditioning for Saturday Night Live with Chris Rock and Adam Sandler? Yeah. She goes, It's true. Now, the word that I would use to describe how I felt back at that time was poleaxed. You couldn't talk to me for a month after that. I would bump into Holocaust survivors and go, you are not going to believe what happened to me. <laughs> and I remember thinking at that time, maybe... Maybe it's just not going to happen. Maybe I'm not going to ever make it. And of course, that what I didn't realize at that time was that it already did happen and that I already had made it. It's difficult when you're in it to be able to step back and objectively look at your career and what success really means. But the sense of awe that I held George Carlin and Richard Pryor in as a child, I already possessed my own version of that. I would walk on stage and pick up a microphone and everybody shut up. And it wasn't just this thing that I did. It was my job, it was my career, it was my life's work, and it still is. And so to the comedians that are here, if you grew up wanting to be a comedian, and you are a comedian... You have made it. The rest is just measures of degree. Now, I'm not naive. There are measures of success and there are levels of success. And it's hard not to worry about that stuff. And it's impossible not to be competitive. I mean, we are in a business where everything has been reduced to a competition. We are in a world where everything has been reduced to competition. Because in competition, there is drama. And drama is compelling. And when something is compelling, people watch it. And when people watch it, you can sell advertising. And if you're not selling something or buying something, why the fuck are you awake? That's why the news is no longer what happened. The news is now who won. They publish movie grosses on Monday morning. 
so we know what movie won. Not what movie is good, what movie won. That's how you end up with something truly base level obscene like Cupcake Wars. We live in a world where three people make cupcakes and two of them are sent home losers. If I know anything about anything, it's that when someone makes cupcakes, everybody wins. And if elected... Show business is a very simple paradigm. It's people in their 60s telling people in their 50s to get people in their 40s to hire people in their 30s to tell people in their 20s to be entertained. But as comedian, it's not your job to worry about that. No one in this room needs to waste another minute running a race that isn't being held because they want to win a trophy that doesn't exist. If you don't fit into the spreadsheet projection of what a focus group company has told a TV exec or what their prospective audience finds desirable, who gives a fuck? It has no bearing on who you are as a person or your value as an artist, and it will not affect the grand arc of your career at all. At all. There are too many venues. There are too many outlets. No one has power over you. At the most, it's work stuff. It's work stuff. What matters is what happens when you walk out on stage and you pick up a mic. There was a time in my life when I really hated Robert Morton. Oh my God. For those of you who don't know, Robert Morton was the executive producer of Late Night with David Letterman, and then later he went on to The Late Show with David Letterman on CBS. And all I wanted to do was get on goddamn David fucking Letterman. So many auditions and tapes and phone calls and tapes of tapes and phonetically breaking down sets. Can we move that one syllable to the third sentence? And I just could not, for all of my efforts, gouge a set out of the stone face of that show. And after a certain period of time, Morty left the show. And Rob Burnett came in. And not long after that, I did the show. So a couple of years later, now I'm, I'm engaged, my fiance is a, is a big agent, and I'm now writing for The Simpsons, which is a job I got not from anything that I submitted or wrote, it is a job I got from people seeing me on stage holding a microphone. The point of it is I'm, I'm now doing okay. I am many people's view of a success story, and I'm still thinking I'm waiting to make it. And through a weird situation of circumstances, I found myself going to Tuscany with a group of people 
to stay at Robert Morton's house. (laughs) With Robert Morton. I would not want to be Robert Morton. So we get there, and Robert Morton, for the record, is the nicest guy in the world. (laughs) He could not have been more lovely or gracious or congenial. (laughs) And we're there two days, three days, four days, and everybody is having the nicest time except for me. And I am a cobra waiting to strike. I am a scorpion with its tail aloft. And then one day we're just sitting out in his beautiful yard. (laughs) And we're talking about the show. And Morty goes, "Uh, uh, Dana, uh, when did you first do the show? I was like, "Uh, uh, 1996. He said, are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure, Marty. I'm real sure. But that was after I left. You don't say! You don't say! Is that true? Not until after you left. Not until after you left the Rooney. And Morty just goes, oh. Sorry about where. That weird. I thought you did the show. You should have. For all the stress and all the anxiety and all of the wasted, wasted, wasted time and energy, when I finally did do the show, my set was the definition of fine. (laughs) It was an orgasm of Okie doke. <laughs> because I had made the show into such a thing that when I finally did do it, I could not in any way enjoy myself, which is not to say that they did not cherry pick my set into oblivion, which they did. Um, we love the fourth syllable of that joke. Could you then move the third sentence of the twelfth joke before that syllable? And then, it didn't seem to flow naturally. (laughs) Enjoying yourself is not the only thing, but it is a thing. You know, for the longest time, I walked around with a false belief that misery is its own reward. (laughs) Not true. When I finished taping Letterman on that August day in 1996, there was a bunch of traffic. So when I walked out of the theater, instead of taking the car back, I just walked back to my hotel. All of my friends that lived in New York were out on the road somewhere, so I ended up just going to the movies by myself. There you have it. 14 years of obsessing and frustration 
and sets and tapes and conference calls and punching my hand and grinding my teeth. And damn it, if I didn't wake up the next morning the same exact human being I was the night before. Finally, 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 finally. I was on TV for five minutes at midnight. But at least I showed up Robert Morton, who thought I did the show five years ago. (laughs) Which brings me to the, the last point I wanted to make regarding obsessing and fetishizing things like The Late Show or The Tonight Show or Saturday Night Live. If you are a performer, these shows are great, but they're not bigger than you are. They certainly shouldn't be. They're not more important than you are. I'm a writer. I wrote for The Simpsons for a long time, but I'm a much bigger fan of me. Those shows will come and go. SNL casts come and go, but you're going to have your career for the rest of your life. And all the movers and shakers in the industry will have moved on to a different job. When I first came here, the people who held the keys to the kingdom that I wanted access to, they have all long since moved on into other jobs. I still have the same job. I walk on stage and I pick up a microphone. In Stephen King's book on writing, he makes the quite brilliant point that your life is not a support system for your art. Your art is a support system for your life. And my view of what I thought my career was going to be, what I thought my life was going to be, what I thought would be important to me, was so completely and thoroughly and perfectly wrong, it's kind of brilliant. I wasn't close on anything. The fact that Chris Rock and Adam Sandler were the ones to get SNL, to me at the time, was so unfair! By the way, if you think life should be fair, try explaining to a homeless person how expensive it is to go camping. (laughs) But the fact is that because I didn't get it, Because I didn't get the show, the woman in Los Angeles that I had just sort of kind of started to somewhat date, that became a relationship, and we ended up getting married. And we now have three children and three dogs and two cats and a rabbit and a lot of other stuff that is a fuckload more important to me than being recognized on the street from someone who remembers me as being cold cuts man or whatever the hell my stupid character would have been. (laughs) Cold cuts man, cold cuts man, he works in the grocery store, he's cold cuts man. (laughs) I would much rather have my family. What I thought was my biggest setback was quite literally the rejection of a lifetime. Which is not to be confused with people who have a stroke and say it was actually a stroke of luck. Because nine times out of ten what they mean by luck is horrible agony. 
Um, and sure, my wife and I get divorced, but hey, Saturday Night Live ain't what it used to be either. Um, <laughs> I like to think we got canceled because we were doing poorly in the overnights. My point is this. I have a friend who, believe it or not, is really, really, really close friends with Bob Dylan. And he told me this story, and it is the best analogy I have ever heard about managing your life with your career in show business. Bob Dylan is playing at the Hollywood Bowl. And my friend says to me, so I go, and I'm walking in, and I'm down front, you know, because I got good seats. I know, I know the guy. And as I'm walking towards my seat, somebody calls for me. I hear, Andy, Andy, over here, over here. And it's a, it's a friend of mine, this woman I know that works for Bob. And she's motioning me backstage. Says, Come over here. So I go backstage. That's really nice. You know, I have tables and chairs, and there's these big buckets of ice filled with beers. People are hanging out. I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Backstage at the Hollywood Bowl. And I'm reaching for a beer, and my friend goes, no, 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 Andy, no, no. Up here, up here. You want go to the lounge. This is backstage. You need to go to the lounge. So I go up these stairs, and now I'm in the lounge. And, you know, there's tables and chairs, but they're a little nicer. There's an open bar. There's Kevin Bacon talking to Kira Sedgwick. This is really good. So I get in line at the open bar, and my friend says, No, 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 Andy. Here. You need to be in the VIP lounge. This is just a lounge. You want to go to the VIP lounge? So I go up these stairs and I go through a curtain and now I'm in the VIP lounge. And there's tables and chairs and it's really nice. And there's no bar but there are just waitresses, these beautiful women walking around with trays and drinks and they're just handing them out. There's Jack Nicholson talking to Warren Beatty. I'm thinking, I've arrived. I'm here, I've arrived. And I'm reaching for a drink off a tray, and my friend goes, No, no, Andy. Bob wants to see you. Bob wants to see you. So I walk out of the VIP lounge, and I go on this corridor, and I go into a room, and there's an old Jewish man with no shirt on smoking a cigarette. (laughs) Everybody's killing themselves trying to get close to this thing that isn't real anyway. That thing that you want... You're actually doing it right now. Careers are a series of lounges, and they are to be enjoyed at every step. And even if you're just backstage, it's still really good. And my only advice is, along the way, try to learn a song and a little soft shoe. Because you don't want to go up there and blow your wad and then have nothing at all. Thank you very much.
podcast reach for the sky. David Goldbaum. We barely try. This has been the Dana Gould Hour, brought to you by the Internet. Music by Andy Paley, with Jake Posner behind the board. Produced by Jeff Fox. Graphic design and web production by Spencer Hunt and Segan Friend. Sound editing and post-production by Jalinda Palmer and Joe Napolitano. Hey, if you like the show, why don't you drop us a line at show at danagould.com. Tom Kenny speaking. You don't get to pee on people for a living and be a victim.